Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And I am, wait for it, the thriller in Manila. Chan, that is. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Thriller. 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 Thriller for Manila. Just, just Thriller. Thriller. We'll just go with Thriller. <laughs> All right. How you doing this morning? Pretty good. Working out the kinks, you know, being new. Yeah. And getting up early, that's always... Well, that's not such a, a hard thing for me, because I was like an avid yogi. Yeah. So that's like mornings are like That's peaceful. your thing in general. The world is asleep. Yeah. But now it's, instead of being calm and doing yoga and stuff in the morning, gotta go. You're on it. Yeah. What is this? At six, at five in the morning, from 5 a.m. to, let's say, 10.30, it's a blur. Yeah, it's that's true. Because it's like you're up, you're getting ready, you're listening to news, you're reading through story, you know, all of that stuff. And, that and stuff these is crazy just people up. Yeah. Watching. Watching. Listening. I mean, right now we have, let's see, 46 people watching within an hour. Then we're probably going to go up to three I something. Know, I know. I noticed the, the world is starting to wake up. Yeah. So these super hardworking or your night owls watching right now. Hello. Hello, rumblers. A lot of them are night owls. I used to... When real men can't sleep, real men do the news. That's my thing, right? <laughs> and so I, am, I tend to be an insomniac. And so at 2, 3 in the morning, I'll be doing my show. And you'd be surprised how many people will be there watching. It's like, why are you awake? What's happening in the fault lines? Owls. Yeah, it's like, dude, I'll be on fault lines in an hour. Don't worry about it. In an hour? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. Well, let's get to headlines. Now, I'm still, I'm still, I'm settling in, folks. You know, trying to get access to the documents and stuff. So... Do you want me to read? Like, I've got, to no, I've got it. You want me to do it? Go for it. Let's 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 have me have a take a run at it. All right. Let's start domestically here. Republican state representative Dave Williams from Colorado has filed a lawsuit on Monday against the Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold, upset that she would not include the conservative catchphrase as his nickname. Williams is running in Colorado's 5th Congressional District against incumbent Republican Representative Doug Lamborn, is suing to have his name on the June primary ballots as Dave Let's Go Brandon Williams. Now, Mr. Williams argues that under Colorado law, it allows candidates to use nicknames. I guess they don't like the Let's Go Brandon part. All right. Moving on. Uh, Aaron Fowler, 29-year-old there, a junior officer with the U.S. Navy, has died on Sunday after he, quote, became unresponsive during training at Marine Corps Base Hawaii in Oahu. The service confirmed in a memo, in a memo issued on Wednesday that Fowler, who's a resident of Oklahoma, assigned to the Explosive Ordnance Disposal Mobile Unit Number 1 was the third and final phase of the Marine Corps Reconnaissance Leader's course at the time of his death. The This is according to a release from the U.S. Navy. Now, international news, Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu stated on Thursday that Mariupol is now liberated from Ukrainian forces. 
And that order can now be, uh, that order rather, can now be restored in the Ukrainian city. However, he noted that remaining radicals are still besieged at the Azovstal steel plant that we've all been hearing about. Quote, during the liberation of the city, more than 4,000, they're implying militants, were eliminated, 1,478 surrendered, and the remaining group, more than 2,000 of them, were blockaded in the industrial zone of the Azovstal plant. And then in Wimbledon, they have banned Russian and Belarusian athletes from participating in that prestigious tournament. This ban has faced a lot of criticism from a lot of people all over the world, including top-ranked Serbian tennis star Novak Djokovic, who slammed that decision. Then UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has abandoned efforts to block a possible probe by the MPs into whether or not he misled the commons over so-called party gate. Currently... I'm sorry. <laughs> I was like, of course he lied. <laughs> well, he was gonna. He was trying to stop them, and then he's like, "All right, fine. I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna stop you from looking into this." So currently, uh, they're focusing on delaying the investigation. So he's getting a lot of pushback about that. Government whips tried to derail labor-led attempts to trigger a Commons Privileges uh, Committee inquiry into whether his earlier statements to MPs on Partygate and those COVID rules were followed late last year. We know they weren't. Let's just stop pretending like you followed any rules. There were no masks on the people in those photos. So and you know what's even worse? They had to bring their own alcohol. It was a BYOB? It was a brief. I think it was Austin. It was it. We were laughing so much about that. Because it was like, wait a minute, you're the prime minister. Why do people have to bring their own drinks and alcohol? Like, he didn't provide the, he hosted a party and didn't provide Booze? Should provide booze, man, especially if you're the PM. Lame. (laughs) Well, the PM insisted that the COVID rules were followed (laughs) last year. And uh, when allegations of lockdown busting parties on Downing Street first surfaced. So we know that he lied when all this stuff first happened. Yeah. And then in preparation for its August launch, NASA's Psyche spacecraft recently underwent a series of tests to ensure that the years-long trip, this is a a long, long trip, will not be in vain due to avoidable flaws in the construction. That is where you don't want any flaws, right? It's when you're sending something into space. The spacecraft was ultimately given the green light after undergoing a series of rigorous and taxing tests, they say, including electromagnetic, vibration, shock, thermal vacuum, and acoustic examinations. And more in science here, a new theory may have answered the question as to why the planet Venus rotates. According to the theory, the reasons for Venus's rotation is due to a process called tidal locking. Tidal. Tidal locking is when a smaller object rotates around a larger object, but without spinning. Right. Like the moon around Earth or Mercury around the sun, Venus is close enough to the sun that it should be tidal locked, but instead it spins slowly. Now, the reason it rotates at all is because it's extremely thick atmosphere. 
Its extremely fast winds also drag the planet's surface, loosening the sun's grip on the planet enough that it rotates, albeit super slow. So slow that one day on Venus is longer than a Venusian year. The planet only takes 224 Earth days to make its trip around the sun. And special days, we'll call it holidays. National Bulldogs Day. Bulldogs are beautiful day, I should say. And me being a bulldog owner, lover, I'm all for this day. They are beautiful, beautiful, fat, little smush-faced creatures (laughs) that are very gaseous and slobbery and wonderful. Uh, National High Five Day, tomorrow. Gotta do this. Do it. We did it. High Five Day. (laughs) And then National Kindergarten Day. I don't know. Maybe it means nap time. Is that what it is? I'm all for it. Uh, Especially a mom is definitely going to be for that. I'm all for that. And first day of summer in Iceland. They They get to summer before us. And this day in history, 1910, Samuel Clemens, uh, Mark Twain, better known as, author of the novel Huckleberry Finn, died at the young age of 74. In 1960, Brazil inaugurated its new capital, Brasilia. In 1975, South Vietnamese President Nguyen Van Tu resigned. In 1980, Rosie Ruiz was the first woman to cross the finish line at the Boston Marathon. She was later disqualified for cheating, though. That's that's kind of bad. Uh, in 1995, Timothy McVeigh was arrested in connection with the Oklahoma City bombing. We talked about that earlier this week. Yeah. Uh, and in 1997, the ashes of Timothy Leary, Gene Rodenberry, and 22 others blasted into space for the first space funerals. Did you say Gene Roddenberry? Gene Roddenberry? Yeah. Wow. Into space. Amazing. You know Gene Roddenberry is, right? Isn't he a director, filmmaker? Creative Star Trek. Right. Yeah. It's like, isn't he a film, a TV, yeah, TV media film. person? Yeah. yeah. Um, Star Trek, yeah. This yeah. expansion, um, this emancipatory humanity or future of humanity. Love it. Love it. I know this name. Yeah, it's I like that name is familiar. Media person, I knew. But those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chance. Yeah, Rinebury has this, you know, it's funny. It's, it's if you think of in, an expansionistic, um, this kind of cosmopolitan future of humanity where Earth gets itself together, gets itself straight, and goes out into the cosmos. Oh, I love that. I love that. I mean, even this idea of getting, like, because in the Star Trek universe, Earth is a paradise. But mind you, it went to the brink of disaster to get to that point. I mean, they had wars. They had a third world war. They had wars with other civilizations. The premise is different than Star Wars. Oh, yeah. Which, thousand percent you're the different. Trek, I'm yeah. the wars. Yeah, the Star Wars thing is like an empire where these guys are right. at a you know, consistent war. Um, Star Trek has its elements where you have empires and whatnot. But, okay. but Earth, from the standpoint of the Federation, it's about cooperation, cosmopolitanism, um, freedom, independence, even though you're kind of linked together, that your fate is basically tied within my fate and we are going to pursue um, our ends together or not at all. It's that type of thing. Yeah, I never really watched it. I mean, I've seen it, obviously, yeah. but never really watched oh, it. I love it. I love it. It's so good. I know you do. And then it's like if you're going through different eras where you get, let's say, like, the Captain Kirk generation okay. or the Picard generation where it's more like Earth is 
arrogant. I don't want to say arrogant, but they basically have gotten their stuff together. And so it's almost like we're just explorers. I mean, Picard went so far as that. We are not a military organization. Star Trek is an um, exploration organization, et cetera. And people are like, okay, yeah, dude, but you guys used to be. But that's his idea, right? That's his ideological framing of this is okay. what the Federation is. Later on, they do become more of a military organization as things start to fall apart. But it's a— Oh, later in the series. Yeah, because by the time you get to Deep Space Nine, you're not near Earth anymore. Earth is a paradise, yes. But at the border so regions, they, not Why so did they leave it? Earth? Because they wanted to expand out. They're explorers. In their heads, okay. our job is exploration. Because if you think about it, what's so the point? they weren't running away from anything. They no, just, no, 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 no. They're like, things are great here. Let's yeah. see what else is out there. How do we bring this level of order and peace and happiness to the rest of the universe? That's oh, the way they think. Okay, interesting. And, I mean, from, and if you think about it, there is no point to really anything. Like anything that people, no, I, I'm being serious. If you think of it, it's a really individual conception. Are you a feudalist? Hmm? Are you a feudalist? No. No. You're hopeful. You're a very hopeful person. I am I hopeful, but I do realize that there's no point. Like, people make their point. Meaning, we make a determination about what we want to focus on. If I sure. want to play chess and I think chess is the greatest thing ever, and I'm talking to you, you'll be like, okay, dude, whatever, man. But I may define, like, a huge amount of my capabilities, my ego, all of that stuff may be wrapped into it. When you think about it, though, it's like, dude, you're just pushing pieces. That's it. You're just moving wood right. across the board. There's all sorts of stuff going in your head when that's happening, but yeah. you're basically just pushing wood. Same thing with football players. Or same thing with the guy who develops... I don't know, the atomic bomb. Like, yes, this is invaluable from the standpoint of the people who are around you, but as an absolute, no, there's no point behind it. And so for these guys, they decided, if there's no point, we make our point. Our point is to expand, explore, et cetera. Our point more so is, how do we make as much money as possible, et cetera, et cetera. And this is kind <laughs> of the point for our context. But those things are choices. Um, but there's no absolute. And that all came from the mind of Gene Roddenberry. Yes. I mean, don't get me wrong, they had to tweak it because Gene Reinenberry's idea and vision of it was so, people couldn't touch it. Like, it's so different from the way we as human beings function. Like, that it's, it's, they had to add, let's say, more gray into the show to make it interesting. I, I got a note. My high school drama teacher, uh-huh. Mr. Roddenberry. His last name was Roddenberry. Yes. Robert, though. Robert Roddenberry. Robert Roddenberry. Any relation? I don't, you know, I never asked him because I didn't know. I wasn't a trainee. Oh. So I, I never asked, but he was our, our high school theater teacher. Yeah. Very interesting. He's great. It, he, it's theater, too. Right. There's and other, like, and he's, st- he's still my Facebook friend. Is he? Hello, Mr. Roddenberry. We have, let me see, I have my I math teacher. Mr. Roddenberry. Yeah, we used, my math teacher, Mrs. Corbett. She's still one of my Facebook friends. Wow. Yeah, and that was, what, seventh grade? Wow. Something like that. It was a long time ago. It was so long ago. But let's do this. Let's take a break. We're going to come back with the soapbox segment. Um, <laughs> the audience, I can hear them. is like, dude, do not get him on Star Trek. And they're going to be like, don't put in Gene Roddenberry. You know. know where that's going to go. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> no, it's not your fault. The producers put it in. Like, they know I love stuff like that. But now the space thing is fascinating. But let's do this. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined by my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. 
We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, most likely Rumble, definitely give us a like, share this video, hit that Rumble, all of that good stuff. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. That is the difference between the transition, I should say, between doing television, where I don't, I didn't try to talk at people because I know there's people on the other side of that camera receiving my feed and, and I wanted to talk to and with people, but you can't, you really can't get engagement on television. Right. Whereas in radio, you can actually get live ongoing engagement as it's happening real time, like in the rumble room, mm-hmm. the fault lines rumble room, or in this case, they can call. We have regular callers. I'm noticing like, like Tarif. Our friend Tarif. Um, so it's it's nice to, it, it feels like a community. Yes. That's really nice. So let me get into the soapbox segment. This is the monologue. Um, so there have been a few things that have been taking place um, going on in regards to Ukraine, obviously, and clearly. And whereas the Western media at this point admits that they've been lying flagrantly, lying flagrantly. I mean, the article, in a break with the past, U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia, even when the intel isn't rock solid. That's more likely when you read the article. We've been lying, and we've been lying voluminously, and we have been doing so for months. Whereas our job has been trying to explain contextually the gravity, for one, of this catastrophic failure and loss of human life, but also to get across how pointless this was. And the moment that you step through and figure out, okay, how do we get to the point that we're at now? I'm sorry, people like me, people like who work here, they are appalled by this loss of life, especially when it didn't need to be this way. Western media, instead of giving people this kind of contextual explanation of what happened and why it happened, they've decided to debase themselves and to completely ignore their philosophical and ethical responsibility to explain to the public to be the fourth of state and instead function in the interests of state. Now, whether they're doing this because they're incompetent, whether they're doing this because they don't know any better, or whether they're doing this because they're just corrupt and they believe that their responsibilities to state matter more than their responsibilities to the public, you be the judge. I don't necessarily know which one it is. I only know that some of the story, the framing, has been absurd. And my point is, we have been more right. We had multiple people coming on. Some people are pro NATO, some people are against. If you guys want to see the conversation with Peter Kuznick and I, Um, On my own channel, him and I got more to a debate on this issue. But I guess the point that I'm making here is we on this channel have been more right. Sitting on the moon, looking at events, what is taking place and however it cuts is how it cuts. I don't do that because I work on Radio Sputnik. I do that because I just want to be ethical and philosophically correct. To me, it is far more important that the public get a contextual point of view in order to avoid issues of war. Because in my conception, If the public understands how they got to a particular point, even if they don't entirely agree with my premise on it, at the very least, they have a better context of this is more gray as opposed to one side being a black hat and one side being a white hat. It always feels, and that just feels, there's always a hole in the way that the Western media reports this. And that hole for me and what's in that hole makes this that much more catastrophic and that much more pointless. For one, the Soviet Union falls. 
Now, this was the opportunity for the world to come together. Look, Peter and I disagree on all sorts of things, but he definitely agrees on that. That was a moment that this world could have been something different. And instead, Soviet Union falls, NATO continues, and they give these assurances that NATO wouldn't expand an inch to the east. Now, the reason that I'm bringing this up is not that each and every person during that time frame believed it. I'm making the point that they understood that this was a red line, and they understood that decades ago. And yet, one step after the next, despite their assurances, they continue to expand NATO 13 nations. Okay, fair enough. On top of that, you get this thing where they start to focus on Ukraine not being satisfied and content with the idea of, okay, we're going to expand this 13 nations. No, we also now need to focus on Ukraine. And they create all sorts of pressures within the context of Ukraine, putting in weapons, putting in um, 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 munitions and people. And not just that, offering Ukraine membership into NATO, something that at this point, Jen Stoltenberg basically says, yes, that was a mistake. No, duh. No, duh. They knock over the government of Ukraine when Yanukovych wouldn't necessarily sign himself to be closer to the European Union. And in doing so, the U.S. was intimately involved in this. Even at this point, it is not a foregone conclusion that this war would take place. The Minsk agreements were signed, but no, the U.S. and his European partners don't push Zelensky to fulfill the Minsk agreements. And even with that, it is still not a foregone conclusion that this war takes place. Russia makes one main point. Ukraine cannot be a part of NATO. And despite the fact that all of them behind the scenes were basically telling Zelensky the same thing, nobody would come out and say it. Instead, Russia doesn't have security guarantees. Russia doesn't have an issue with this. Putin is just making this up. And I keep bringing this point up about Cuba. Is Cuba an independent nation? And if Cuba is an independent nation, what right does the U.S. or any other nation have of telling them they can't put Soviet missiles into Cuba and point those missiles at the United States? And how is this dramatically different from the situation that's taking place in Ukraine? The United States was willing to end the world under this notion that it is a clear and present danger for Cuba to have those weapons aimed at the United States and for them to be that close to our borders. All right, now we're amnesia, right? Because in the same situation, we have all of these other European leaders, mean girls, coming out. Oh, Russia doesn't have real security concerns. NATO is love and light. NATO is just flowers and rainbows. That's all they are. And Russia shouldn't have any real security guarantees. This, of course, is utter nonsense. If you've seen the U.S. action in various parts around the globe, why would you look at that situation of it getting closer and closer to the border, it integrating itself more into NATO, and getting that much more belligerent with a radical right-wing, Russophobic government that opened up a campaign of killing against the Eastern Russian-speaking population in Ukraine. No, the West didn't care about that for the last eight years. We've talked about it. They never cared about it. And now, all of a sudden, all focus and all eyes on Ukraine. And that is the only thing that we should talk about and care about. When I call this senseless, I call it senseless because at each step along the way, it didn't have to be this way. You had people with these massive, grandiose ideas about what they wanted to do to the world. And the idea of using NATO as this kind of sculpture, this geopolitical chessboard that these guys can manipulate, move, and move around where they don't necessarily care about the people who are on the ground, but they do care about the orientation of the various governments and whether those governments are a power center or an ally of ours. Fast forward to Moripal. Fast forward to Moripal. I've made the point, and I've been pretty belligerent towards Zelensky, I've called him a dirtbag and all sorts of other bad names, but it's for instances like what is taking place in Moripal. It is clear 
that it is on the brink of collapse. It is clear that they are out of weapons and food. And even based on their own assessments, they are in a desperate situation. They've been entirely encircled. They've been entirely surrounded. They've been bombarded. And yet, when Russia gave them the opportunity to basically come out, they don't do it. And there are reports that they're not given permission to give in. Think about that. They're entirely surrounded. They have no military purpose for being there at that point. They're just there. And yet, when the opportunity was given to surrender, they wouldn't take the opportunity. And some reports are even coming out that they were forbidden from surrendering, that it basically their deaths would matter more as opposed to actually saving their lives. When Russia said, we demand you surrender, Zelensky is basically saying, I demand you get annihilated. That is better for our interests as opposed to you guys coming out and surrendering. So this came out the other day where a commander that is fighting in Moropol from Ukraine, quote, we may be facing our last days, if not hours, unquote. And again, this is after Russia issues another ultimatum saying, we're giving you the opportunity to lay your weapons down and come out. Quote, the enemy is outnumbering us 10 to 1. Sher Volne of the 36 separate Marine brigades said he's appealed for extraction from the last stronghold in Moripal in a Facebook post on Wednesday. Let's keep going. Russia has repeatedly called on them to surrender. They've refused to do so. And its defense ministry, the Ukraine forces still hold up inside Azovstal. We're facing a, quote, catastrophic situation. Quote, we appeal and plead to all the world leaders to help us. He said in the video, quote, we asked them to use procedure of extraction to take us to a territory of a third party state. He also made the point of saying Russia had an advantage in air and artillery, their forces on land and equipment and in tanks. We are only defending one object, the Azovstal plant, where in addition to military personnel, there are civilians who have fallen victim to this war. Now think about what we're saying for the moment. They're completely surrounded. They're completely cut off. They've run out of supplies. They don't have any bullets or guns or anything like that. They're basically just held up in that one spot, entirely cut off. And when given the opportunity to surrender, they refuse to do so. And now they're basically saying there's civilians in the building. Here's a question. If there are indeed civilians in that building, why, when the opportunity was given to let them out, didn't you give them the opportunity to leave? Now, this goes to the whole question of human shields that Russia has basically been making. And people who've been on the ground has basically said when people tried to leave, civilians or otherwise, they would get shot by Ukrainian forces that would try to keep them there. And so what about this? If there are indeed civilians in that building and Russia gave the opportunity for those people to basically leave and lay down their arms, why didn't the Ukrainian military allow them to do it? Even if they themselves are going to allow themselves to be senselessly annihilated, why would you allow other Ukrainian civilians to be in that situation? This is kind of what I'm getting at here when I say this is so senseless and what a wasted loss of life. To end up in a conflict where you have by Russian numbers, 23,000 irretrievable losses from the standpoint of Ukraine. I don't know how many um, civilians that have basically lost their lives, but a country is basically being balkanized. And you come to the conclusion that within the first few weeks, that the request that Russia was making, that you will not be a part of NATO, was the very request that they decided to accept. How senseless is this? And now to end up in Moropol, where they're completely surrounded, even by their own standards, they can do nothing else but get annihilated. And yet, they're not allowed to throw down their weapons and come out. It's a tragedy. Um, Manila, I find this to be senseless. And the reason why I go into this kind of run up into it is because I try to get across how senseless it is that in no way this needed to happen. 
And that if nothing else, you had various people who were pushing extremely hard to try to get closer and closer and closer to the border. All of them knew that this was a certain level of brinksmanship. All of them continued to do it, and they did it for decades. And even when they knocked over Ukraine, even then, they still had agreements, <clears throat> like the next two agreements. They still had these negotiations. It was like, look, we need you to not be part of NATO. We need you to say it. And even though behind the scenes, all of them admitted to it, none of them would say it. And so it's this kind of weird, aggravating thing of like, all right, all of these people are dying senselessly. And not just senselessly. Now in Maripol, when you have the opportunity needlessly. to surrender, you don't. It's just needless. Yeah, it's a catastrophe. When, when you see wars break out, that is not usually because, like, the way people want to paint Vladimir Putin to be this evil dictator mm -hmm. or what have you, uh, or that he's just, you know, lost his mind and he's just being violent just to be violent. Um, a war is usually the obvious signs of a failure of, of diplomacy between whoever the parties are. And in this case, with Ukraine uh, trying to separate themselves from their history of kinship and brotherhood with the other Slavic nations in that region, trying to separate themselves and lean in to the EU, lean into NATO. It's like, how much, you want to keep doubling down on that? Yeah. How like, much is it worth? Right. Is, is it really worth it to you that you are really, really making your big neighbor, your neighbor's a big bad dude? Yeah. Right? As <laughs> If you want to call it that, right? Has anybody ever had a big, you know, a neighbor where you're like, ooh, don't want to piss him off? Yeah. Like, you know that's your neighbor, but you're going to go over there and and poke. Poke the bear. And be like, because my other neighbor on this side is a big dude, too. Yeah. 4,000 miles away across the ocean. Right. <laughs> across the it's ocean. It's not the neighbor in the next apartment that you're referring to. It's the dude that lives down 10 blocks away. Yeah. And you're like, I can call him because he's my friend. Pro no. No. Like, that's just so insane. And then for the Yanukovych government, a government that was elected by East and West. Meaning this wasn't a situation and where— And twice elected. And that's I say right. twice because they had a do-over vote. Mm -hmm. Because the West was like, no, this vote is fraudulent. Because anytime the West doesn't like the outcome of a democratically elected uh, leader in a, in, a, in a proper democratic vote, yes, they automatically call that a— Fraudulent a election. Fraudulent election. Or there's difficulties or there's problems right. with this election. We don't like the outcome. Right. We don't so like they did outcome. a do-over, and not only did Yanukovych win again, he won more yeah. votes than previously, than the and, original. And to be very clear, again, the East and the West. Like, the point that I'm making here is, right now, Correct. a lot of the fault lines that we're talking about, no pun intended, is between the ethnic Russian speakers or the ethnic sure. Russian Ukrainians or the Ukrainian Russian speakers versus the ones that are basically on the West. Okay, fair enough. My point is that both elected him. Meaning it was a legitimate election yeah. that both basically brought him in. And naturally, if from a democratic choice, he was more along the orbit of Russia. And the U.S., NATO could not stand it, wouldn't tolerate it. You get Victoria Nuland and some of these other people basically talking about who they're going to choose to take the government. Well, it wasn't that he was anti-European. He wasn't. It, it wasn't at all. It's just he didn't. What, what, what the fault line was yeah. no, in I, that relationship. Yes, no. No pun intended. <laughs> but the fault line in that relationship 
was that the EU, I mean, Ukraine was trying to to remake or redo their their economic system. Yes. I mean, they're, they're kind of in, in shambles yeah. at the time that he took over. And he was looking to get bank loans. Yes. Like countries do. Like the U.S., you know, gets a lot of, you know, Chinese money to help us stay afloat. Yes. Right? So he looked, Yanukovych looked into the European Union and the World Bank and the IMF and the normal external hard money brokers, we'll say. Right. And they were trying to give Ukraine a really bad deal. Yes. And, and they're he, like, you take this and you will take it now and you'll like it. And he calls for Paul's and all hell breaks loose. Right. And he's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know if I want to sign this contract. I don't want to sign this contract. This is not in the best interest of Ukraine. Right. And he's like, let me go this way. Let me go east and ask the Russians. Our neighbor. Our neighbor. See if they'll give us a loan to help us remake our, rebuild our economy. You know, what is it? Bring back better? Bring back better Ukraine. Right. (laughs) So he went over to Vladimir Putin and Vladimir Putin was like, yeah, let's make a deal. Let's open borders. It, the Kind of the way the U.S. and Mexico trade. Yes. Or, or like, I mean, I'm not saying it is NAFTA, but like the way NAFTA works, like we'll do this deal and like we won't bother you with this tariff and that tariff. And he went, you know what? That sounds pretty good. And that was unacceptable. And that was unacceptable to NATO, unacceptable to the EU. And then Maidan happens in 2014. They put in a rabid, right-wing, Russophobic government. Um, and yeah, I guess my point is such a waste. And all of this is done not because it was in the best interest of Ukraine. It was done purely for this kind of geopolitical gamesmanship, um, this game of power or game of thrones. We don't want you in their orbit. We want you in ours. The gain for the EU and the gain for the U.S., but yes. not the gain for the Ukrainian people. Not in the least. And by the way, not even for us now, because we're getting hit with the financial consequences of this kind of economic war and all of this other stuff. Well, American politicians will will sacrifice that. They will sacrifice the the working man yeah. and force us to pay more, save less, uh, get less in order. That is the sacrifice, as yes. Jen Psaki said. Yeah, pay for our values. I mean, we, we got to believe. Well, better pay for her values yes. or their values. When they show us who they are, we got to believe it yes. tomorrow. They show us. They don't hide who they are. I mean, as the generations go on, you know, the decades go on, they more and more show us their cards. But see, then they use propaganda to cover it, though. It's like, because even with they're this. they're like, I didn't, you misunderstood what I said. Yeah, you misunderstood this. I mean, like, they leave that huge hole out of, meaning what you just explained and what we just explained when we kind of went through, this is how it all started. This is how it happened. Here's the context. That is a hole that they intentionally leave out in order to manipulate the public's perception of events. This is far more gray, far more gray than the black and white hats that they are basically ascribing to it. Manila, thank you for that. Um, Let's do this. Let's take a break. You guys are listening to Footlines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment, we're going to get into some Pakistan politics or Pakistani politics. You're not going to want to miss this. The Imran Khan thing has been fantastically interesting. Um, it, it has. Look, I love politics, right? Even if it's not in the United States. But we'll be back in a moment. Fault Lines, Thomas Chan. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C., and let's go to our guest. 
And this is someone that Manila has brought onto the show. And this is great because I've wanted to get into this issue on Pakistan for a while. Yes, we we are bringing in our my friend. I can go as far as calling Hamza this. Uh, Hamza Azar Salam is the founder of Pakistan Daily, and he is a political wonk, right? That's who you want to talk to when this stuff is happening. And I'm not sure, gentlemen, if Americans, people even even in the West, are even aware of what's happening in Pakistan. Um, There was a surprise vote of no confidence against Imran Khan, who is probably better known as this, you know, iconic cricketer. Yeah. Right. People know him as that. But in case you didn't know, the last 40 some odd months, he was the man in charge in Pakistan. And he was a divisive figure. And now he's voted out as PM. And they have just uh, newly rolled in a new PM and a bunch of whole new people. And I don't know if you heard this, Jamal. Right now, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar is in Islamabad. Is she? Meeting with all these new people. Interesting. So this is where we will bring in Hamza Azar Salam of Pakistan Daily to get us up to speed. Hamza, are you there? Uh, yes, Manila, I'm here, and I'm extremely grateful to you for inviting me to this show. Good to have you, my friend. It's nice to hear your voice. Can you get us up to speed? First, get the American listeners up to speed. What happened to Imran Khan? Uh, well, Imran Khan claimed uh, that a foreign conspiracy removed him from power, and he has directly named uh, the United States as being uh, behind this conspiracy. Uh, so uh, what Imran Khan refers to is a secret document. It's a diplomatic cipher uh, sent by the then uh, Pakistani ambassador in Washington, in which uh, he claims that Donald Liu, an assistant secretary of state, uh, threatened uh, Pakistan of dire consequences if uh, Imran Khan stayed in power. So in Pakistan, we're calling it the Lettergate uh, conspiracy. Interesting. I'm reading it right here. It says, U.S. says no letter sent to Pakistan, Imran Khan. Well, look. I mean, he has a point, though, right? And my thing was always, okay, what's true? In one sense, Imran Khan was there in Moscow at the time of the invasion of Ukraine. The United States has been apoplectic in general and somewhat off their rocker in the way that they've responded to this. Meaning in general, from the standpoint of trying to get the world on one very specific side of this issue. And so seeing Imran Khan there, my thought was, it's very possible that they did look at it in those terms, that that is unacceptable, that he is supposed to be at the very least some kind of ally of ours and he's sitting in Moscow. Um, but by the same token, I also thought, is it possible that the people who were there in the various parties thought to themselves, this is not going to be good for us with him sitting there like that and his alignment to, let's say, Russia and China is a problem for Pakistan? What's more likely to be true in that situation? Do you believe that it was a coup in a sense? Or do you believe that the various parties took action because they thought he's going too far outside of the U.S. orbit, especially with the relationship between the U.S. military and Pakistan? Uh, Well, I think uh, the defining factor is uh, Imran Khan's relationship with the Pakistani establishment, which does comprise of the Pakistani military and the intelligence services. Uh, Because uh, many people, including myself, uh, we believe that the establishment is actually uh, the ones who are calling the shots. And the civilian government, the prime minister, uh, is... uh, you know, secondary uh, to the establishment. Uh, So the primary conflict arose between Imran Khan and the military leadership in November last year uh, on the appointment of the new uh, DGISI. Uh, ISI is Pakistan's premier intelligence agency and Imran Khan uh, wanted someone else to head it while the army chief uh, wanted someone else to head it. So that was the origination of the conflict. 
but yes pakistan's military also has a very close relationship with the us and there were concerns uh, about uh, uh, ex prime minister imran khan's uh, visit to moscow and his meeting with uh, vladimir putin so yes i do think uh, that these things played out but uh, so far we have not seen any proof uh, of this conspiracy so you know we're still waiting for this to develop now hamza what about the the new prime minister shabaz sharif uh, he's a three-time chief minister of punjab province what do you expect to come out of his government and and how long will he stay on will that be will there be a, a new general election is he temporary uh, well yes uh, the new general elections are expected to be held in august of next year uh, that is when the par- five year parliamentary term will be complete uh, now uh, prime minister shibash sharif is leading a coalition government uh, which includes all major parties uh, of pakistan including a uh, former allies of uh, prime minister imran khan so the people who supported imran khan's government previously have defected uh, from that alliance and they have joined uh, the new alliance many of uh, the parliamentarians which got voted in on uh, imran khan's uh, party ticket uh, even they have betrayed uh, imran khan and uh, they've joined uh, the new government so it's a very interesting uh, situation overall that is very weird i, I mean that is very strange it, to defect yeah all of them defected that fast in that particular way i mean to me my thought was yeah that's very interesting i mean because imran khan initially when all of this took place and the no confidence vote came up there was all sorts of political maneuvering that was involved i mean they got the parliamentarian to basically throw it out. He was getting the president to call for new elections. And I suspected that he was calling for new elections because he believed, especially if he can cast his opposition as being pushed and motivated by the U.S. interests, that he has a much better chance of winning that election as opposed to basically, you know, like the elites being able to basically control um, the political situation. I mean, why were they doing that? And wouldn't an election be somewhat necessary at this point? I mean, they basically depose the sitting prime minister. Yes, but it was done uh, via parliament. And, you know, in a parliamentary democracy, uh, you can remove uh, a prime minister via a vote of no confidence. So this parliamentary term is for five years. And elections in Pakistan happen after every five years. So uh, what uh, the new uh, uh, government, what they want is for this parliamentary term to be completed. And then they want to go uh, back uh, to the people. And I think Imran Khan's strategy uh, is, you know, is very good. because anti-americanism sells in pakistan regardless of the fact of whether this conspiracy is true or not uh, but you know people have a lot of anti-american sentiment and uh, i think he has exploited it uh, very well politically yeah he he obviously was voted in on the populist movement movement during the same time that trump was in office and that it seemed to be a big thing uh, the only place this populist movement didn't really uh, stick was with Marine Le Pen in France who's back on the tick or at least she's in the runoff right now with against Emmanuel Macron. Um the populist sentiment is that still there Hamza in in Pakistan and and do does the general population in Pakistan do they hate Americans like Americans hate American politicians I mean where where is the where's the fine line do they understand you know that that a lot of there's a lot of problems here within the US government as well and and the populist movement it it swung completely the other way does any of that make a difference to the people of pakistan well i think the regular people of pakistan are primary primarily concerned about inflation and you know unemployment because these are the things which impact their lives Us we have too. electricity shortages here 
so that is the primary driver. But uh, that being said, I think that yes, generally, uh, the Pakistani population has a negative perception about the United States, mm. especially because of Pakistan's role in the war on terror. Uh, we lost over 80,000 lives. Uh, we lost a lot of soldiers, a lot of police officers. And Pakistan does feel used by the United States because we were their ally. We did uh, almost everything uh, which they asked uh, Pakistan yeah. to do. But yet we had drone attacks in Pakistan. And now after the fall of Kabul, I think uh, the, di the dynamic between Pakistan and the U.S. Ha has changed. And one more thing we have to consider is that ever since President Biden has uh, come into power, he did not even speak to uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan once. Wow. And he has not even spoken to Prime Minister Shabash Sharif yet, which reflects uh, how uh, much uh, the relationship between the United States and Pakistan has suffered. But Hamza, we should note, we should note that um, I know it's not President Biden or even his cabinet, but Ilhan Omar, the congresswoman, is there right now in Islamabad. Do you think that is at least some sort of a consolation prize? And, and, and what are people saying about her visit? Well, it's very interesting because she did meet uh, Pakistan's prime minister. She met uh, Pakistan's president, who is also of Imran Khan's party. And she also met Imran Khan. So a lot of Pakistani political commentators are actually making fun of Imran Khan for meeting a U.S. congresswoman when he alleged that the opposition parties met uh, U.S. officials and U.S. diplomats. So they're accusing him of hypocrisy for hosting Ilhan Umar and uh, her entire delegation in his home in Banigala in Islamabad. I'm curious, do the people in Pakistan, what do they think about this? Do they believe it's a coup? Do they believe it's just political intrigue? What is their perspective of all of the events that have basically taken place? Well, it depends on who you ask, uh, because Imran Khan does have a lot of following. So if you ask his supporters or people who are inclined uh, to vote for him, they do buy uh, the conspiracy theory. Uh, they do think that, yes, uh, foreign intervention resulted in uh, Imran Khan's ouster. But if you talk to uh, people who are perhaps more uh, politically aware of things and who are actually part of the politics, what I think is that they feel that this was a genuine uh, political movement because there was a lot of uh, animosity against Imran Khan because of many of his decisions, uh, primarily because of inflation, rising prices. Now, that is a global phenomenon. But in a poor country like Pakistan, where people have a very uh, limited uh, disposable income, here it's uh, difficult for people to buy you know, food or pay rent. So when uh, these are the circumstances, I think there is a lot of anti-government sentiment and there was an anti-Imran Khan sentiment which the opposition and the establishment capitalized on uh, to remove him from power. Hey, one more thing about um, Afghanistan. It is widely believed mm -hmm. that, let's say, the Pakistani Secret Service was helping the Taliban in Afghanistan. For, I guess first, mm -hmm. is that true? And I guess this gets into the kind of complicated relationship that the U.S. has with Pakistan in this case. Could you speak about that for a moment? Uh, well, Pakistan has had a lot of influence uh, in Afghanistan. And uh, our state has had very good uh, relationships with the, the senior Taliban uh, leadership. Uh, a lot of uh, the Taliban leaders used to live in Pakistan uh, when the U.S. Uh, was in charge and when the Karzai government was there. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, the Pakistani intelligence services and Pakistani officials have uh, built uh, good relationships with the Taliban. But even this relationship uh, is evolving every day. So before uh, the fall of Kabul, I think Pakistan's role in Afghanistan was more important for the Taliban as well. They valued uh, Pakistan as an ally much more. 
But now, since they're in power and they have their own government and they have their sovereignty and everything, now I think they're not valuing Pakistan uh, as uh, as an ally as they did before. So this dynamic is also changing with time. Um, so what about, you know, in, in this current situation of, of war with Russia and Ukraine, um, we know that India has taken sort of a, a neutral stance because they're, I mean, it, they claim to be neutral, but they see, appear to be doing welcoming business with Russia. China mm-hmm. is a little more blatantly uh, backing Russia, also trying to broker deals without the United States. What is Pakistan's position, you think, this, this new government? What do you think their position will be moving forward? Uh, Well, I think this government, uh, in my humble opinion, I think they will be more inclined uh, towards the U.S. uh, Because right now, uh, the new finance minister of Pakistan is in uh, the United States. He's negotiating a deal with IMF. Uh, We're seeking uh, a bailout package from them. Uh, So in these negotiations, the U.S. does become uh, a more important ally. And also, interestingly, uh, Pakistan's army chief, who is widely considered as the most a powerful man in Pakistan. Uh, just recently, when Imran Khan was prime minister, he called on uh, Russia to stop its uh, invasion of Ukraine, which showed that the Pakistani military does tilt uh, towards the United States in this conflict. But when Imran Khan was prime minister, we saw a very clear tilt of the Pakistani government and uh, uh, Pakistani diplomatic circles uh, towards Russia, and they were very inclined uh, towards building this relationship. Uh, but the government uh, has now changed, and I think that that's on a back burner now. Well, the IMF loan, you don't think that's... Let me ask you this. Was the IMF loan up for a conversation before Imran Khan was deposed or after? Yes, no, I think that was uh, that was still going on, regardless of whoever is in power. Okay. Uh, Pakistan is in very dire straits uh, financially. Uh, if you look at how the dollar has appreciated against the rupee, uh, that'll show you how much uh, Pakistan has suffered. And we are an import-based economy. Uh, so the more expensive the dollar gets, the more our uh, economy suffers. So we do need bailout packages from IMF and we do need foreign aid from different uh, countries and institutions in order to just stay afloat and uh, pay the government's bills. Hamza, what about what about this? That I mean, you were on my my previous show in question, and we discussed in great detail the U.S. Afghanistan withdrawal. Well, now that the Taliban is clearly in power, there's still a lot of violence that goes on. Um, what is that relationship between the new Talib leaders? in Afghanistan with Pakistan now? I mean, are, 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 is your country able to have a solid neighborly relationship with the Taliban? Are they trusting of the Taliban? Well, I think Pakistan has exercised a lot of patience and constraint uh, when it comes uh, uh, to the Afghan Taliban. But I think this relationship has strained ever since uh, the fall of Kabul, especially in regards to the TTP, the tehreek taliban pakistan now, the TTP is based in Afghanistan, but it conducts uh, attacks in Pakistan. And after the fall of Kabul, it has increased uh, attacks on uh, Pakistani uh, security forces, uh, the Pakistani military, uh, in the police. Almost every day we uh, hear of uh, attacks on our security services by the TTP. And uh, behind the scenes, uh, what we've been told from different sources is that uh, Pakistani officials have been negotiating with the Afghan Taliban 
uh, to either uh, orchestrate a truce with the TTP so that these attacks stop, or if a truce cannot be uh, negotiated, then uh, Pakistan will have to, you know, conduct some uh, operations in Afghanistan. And uh, we heard of an airstrike by Pakistan in Afghanistan targeting TTP before, which shows how much uh, the relationship has strained. But on the other hand, we also have uh, the Haqqani network, which is believed uh, to be close uh, to uh, certain people in Pakistan and which is believed to be uh, not subservient, but sympathetic to uh, the Pakistani uh, cause. So uh, they're also there. So I think Afghanistan right now is in itself in a lot of mess. Even today, there was a terrorist attack uh, in Afghanistan in a mosque, uh, resulting in a few deaths. So I think the overall situation is very precarious. And uh, like we spoke in your show uh, earlier, I think uh, the global community uh, needs to uh, address this crisis because it can have a massive spillover effect, which can, you know, go very far and wide. Absolutely. I mean, this is why I thought it was important that we talk about Pakistan, because obviously it was like Afghanistan happened and the U.S. just you know, washed their hands, walked away, and then nobody talked about Pakistan here in, in the U.S. and, and the, the important role of the relationship between the West and Pakistan and Afghanistan and, and how there can be domino effects across, I mean, that's, that's South, South Asia and how this can spill over into Asia, spill over into Russia because there are borders. And I think people fail to remember that, that, Russia borders all these countries, and that's vitally important to their um, not only geopolitical strength, but their own national security. So it's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, really, Hamza, I didn't hear about the TTP um, fighting until right this moment. There's literally, literally zero reporting of this in the West. Nobody's talking about it, not even Al Jazeera, nobody. I mean, I have to go to your website itself to Pakistan daily to see anything that's happening in Pakistan. Mm, yes, yes, it's very unfortunate. And also one thing, uh, why uh, Muslims and Pakistanis in general are anti-West is because when Pakistanis die or when Afghans die in terrorist attacks uh, or in war, uh, the West, you know, doesn't even report it. Or, you know, there's hardly a mention, like you just said. But when people are dying in uh, Ukraine, which we sympathize with, uh, whenever a civilian uh, dies, I think uh, we should condemn it. But there's so much attention uh, in Ukraine, but no attention for Muslims or, you know, and I also saw on TV, I also shared a tweet that, you know, there was a, a commentator on TV and they were saying that, you know, white and blonde people are dying. It's not very far away. Uh, so, you know, they're bringing grace into it. They're bringing uh, religion into it, which is which breaks the hearts of Muslims all over the world because we're considered as you know, second grade or third grade citizens of, of the global community. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. That is, yeah, I agree with you. That's kind of the way it's reported here, if it's reported at all. Um, one, one more question on this. We have about two minutes left. I want to get into China and how the effect that China has on these kind of conversations that, we're taking, that are taking place. Immediately after Imran Khan was deposed, China and Global Daily sent out Made it, wrote an article, Futile for U.S. to Sow Discord Between Pakistan and China. And it's almost as if they're taking the perspective that maybe this was a soft coup. Maybe he was deposed because of U.S. interests. But the relationship between China and Pakistan will basically remain strong, especially in the context of the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, do you think any of this has anything to do with the relationship between Pakistan and China and this kind of 
existential geopolitical contest between these kind of two rival nations? Well, yes, it's very unfortunate that Pakistan has been a proxy between major powers and major powers do influence Pakistan's decisions, be it China or the U.S., uh, but I think Imran Khan, what he uh, lacked is he did not uh, develop a CPEC, the China-Pakistan e- Economic Corridor, and the Belt of Belt and Road Initiative, as uh, was expected by China. Uh, so he, his government, created a lot of impediments uh, to uh, this mega project. And now the new government uh, that has previously worked with China, uh, the new prime minister is the ex-prime minister's brother, uh, Nawaz Sharif's brother. Uh, who uh, did humongous work for a China-Pakistan economic corridor. So even if Pakistan is tilting towards uh, the U.S. now in terms of the conflict in uh, Ukraine, I think China is still uh, you know, seeking good relations with Pakistan because the new government will uh, develop a CPEC. And they've also termed uh, the new uh, prime minister as Shehbaz Speed. Uh, because he completes, he has a reputation of completing mega projects very quickly. Uh, so he has a very good relationship with China. And, you know, I think it remains to be seen how uh, this relationship will uh, develop and evolve, uh, you know, after the change of government. And, uh, you know, let's see how Pakistan still to the United States again influences Pakistan's relationship with China. Very cool. As- Hazma, thank you for this. Hamza Azar Salam, founder of Pakistan Daily. All things Pakistan. Go to Pakistan Daily. Hamza, thank you so much. And I do hope you will come back on the show again to give us updates on what's happening. Thank you. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamaral Thomas. And I am the thriller in Manila, Manila Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and the thriller in Manila. Chance. Right on, right on. Um, great conversation. Love that guy, Hamza. Uh, Hamza is amazing. Yeah, and thank you for jumping in when I was about to butcher his name. <laughs> much appreciate, <laughs> much appreciated. Hey, look, your name is Jamarl. Yeah. People are probably like, how do you spell? How do oh, you, they butcher even, that even name. Phonetic. Yeah. Manila. Hello, folders, Philippines, yeah. clams, whatever. Phonetic. People butcher it all the time. I get Melinda. Oh, really? Melina, oh, that's rough. Just Melissa. Where did you get S's? They always just ignore the R. Like there oh, is like Jamal. Jamal. They oh, would say Jamal. that. Yeah, because they're like, why did your mom put that name? Jamal is, not Jamal. Jamal. Not with the R. Yeah. The R is not common. Add the R. Yeah, the R. Not- Jamal. Like when you're in a Middle Eastern country, they'd be like, because the name is Middle Eastern. And they'd be like, why did you get that name? Even when I was in Israel. When yeah. I, um, I went to visit Israel once. And I remember they told me, look, whatever the security guards ask you, take it very seriously. These people are maniacs. And so I get there and they're like, Jamaro, why do you have a Muslim name? And I was like, my mom just liked the name. Who's your grandfather? Where does your grandfather lineage? They started like going in these type of questions where, yeah, cause the name itself, their thing is, dude, you have a passport that says an American passport, but you have a um, Arabic name. An Arabic sounding. Yeah. It's like, what, what's what's up with that? At which point she starts going into further questions about lineage and genealogy and stuff like that. 
Um, but they let me go. They oh, let I, me go. I, I got a... Looks like the producer say somebody... Somebody's saying I should go by Manila Chan, the Vixen of Truth. The Vix- oh, Vixen? Oh, I like that. I like that. Because you were initially going with Mistress. Mistress, And right. you were like, is That's Mistress a, too... Is it Homewreckery? Homewreckery. But isn't the Mistress thing, even if it is Homewreckery, mi- isn't, like, isn't it still a kind of strength associated well, yes, with it? I was just thinking, like, you know, the, the Mistress part is like... When you you have an MC and it's a male, uh-huh. he's the master of, of ceremony. ceremony. Oh, mistress of ceremony. But the, in this when case. it's a woman, the M stands for mistress of ceremonies, and coincidentally, those are my initials. Yeah. Oh, that's I don't even know. better. I like Vixen. Vixen is good. Oh, that's I like Vixen. One. I like Vixen. Ooh, that's a hot one. By the way, we're at 398 live viewers. Hello, share Rumblers. this content. Share it. Hit that rumble button. Do all of that good stuff. Share it to your mama, your daddy, your dog, your cat. <laughs> your any, bulldog. Your bulldog. bulldog yeah, that's right, because it's bulldog day. Anybody you want to share it to, definitely get it out there. If you're looking for, let's say, a channel or at the very least a show that will be the integrity, you're looking at it. But let's do this. Let's get into the headlines. In the news. In national news, Republican State Representative Dave Williams from Colorado filed a lawsuit on Monday against Colorado Secretary of State Gina Griswold, upset that she would not include the conservative catchphrase as his nickname, Williams, who is running in Colorado's 5th Congressional District against incumbent Republican Representative Doug Lamborn, is suing to have his name on the June primary ballot as, quote, Dave, let's go Brandon Williams, unquote, Williams. Williams argues that Colorado law allows candidate to use nicknames. I love that. Let's go Brandon and he wants that in his name, and he wants that on the ballot. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Um, Lieutenant Aaron Fowler, age 29, a junior officer with the U.S. Navy, died on Sunday after he became unresponsive during training at Marine Corps Base in Hawaii in Aloha. In, I think this Aua. Um, the service confirmed Oahu. a lot. Is that, is that what that is? Oahu. Okay, fair enough. Oahu. Service confirmed in a memo issued on Wednesday. Fowler, a resident of Oklahoma, assigned to the Explosive Ordnance Disposal Mobile Unit 1, was in third and final phase of the Marine Corps Reconnaissance Leaders course at the time of his death, the release detailed. In international news, Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shogu stated on Thursday that Mariupol is liberated from Ukrainian forces and that the order can now be restored in the Ukrainian city. However, he noted that the remaining radicals are still besieged at the Azovstal steel plant. Quote, During the liberation of the city, more than 4,000 militants were eliminated, 1,478 surrendered. The remaining group, more than 2,000, was blockaded in the industrial zone in a Azustal plant, he added. And again, Russia has demanded surrender. They basically refused to surrender. And weirder still, they've even come out basically saying there are civilians here, which, again, this is kind of the first time this is basically coming out that there are supposedly civilians there. But either way, that does not necessarily help their case, considering that they were given the opportunity to surrender. They were given the opportunity to have these kind of quarters. They chose not to do so. And if you are now coming up and saying, hey, there's civilians here, which, again, there's no evidence of at all, then that puts more um, emphasis on this notion that you should have let those people leave if they are indeed there. Wimbledon has banned Russian and Belarusian athletes from participating in a prestigious tournament. This ban has faced heavy criticism from across the world, including top-ranked Serbian star Novak Djokovic. Djokovic. Thank you very much. Slammed the decision. That's what I'm here for. I used to know this guy's name, right? Like, But it's like after you haven't seen it in a very long time, right, and you go right, back to right, it, you're right. like, okay. Djokovic. Yeah. Thank you very much. Novak Djokovic. UK 
Djokovic. The C's are always a ch. When they're Serbian. Yeah. Yeah, the ending C is a ch. Oh, God, I love somebody who's, like, basically studies foreign policy where you've, because you've covered the stuff. And yes. so these names and everything else just got to come to play. Love it. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has abandoned efforts, efforts to block a possible probe by the MPs into whether he misled comments over Partygate Row, currently focused on delaying the investigation. Government whips tried to derail labor-led attempts to trigger a Commons Privilege Committee inquiry into whether his earlier statements to MPs on Partygate amounted to contempt of Parliament. The PM initially insisted that all COVID rules were followed last year when allegations of lockdown busting parties in Downing Street first surfaced. It, you had a party yeah, you had during a party. COVID Own it. when the rest of us couldn't do anything. So. And by the way, this was in the UK, no less, where they had laws against it, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Like, they were putting, like, giving fines and whatnot over that stuff. And so, yeah, these guys had a party. And he's, on. yeah, just own it. Let's get real. Yeah, own it. Everybody know you did it. Own yes. it. In tech news, in preparation for August launch, NASA's Psyche spacecraft recently underwent a series of tests to ensure that the year's long trip would not be in vain due to avoidable flaws in construction. The spacecraft was ultimately given the green light after undergoing a series of rigorous and taxing tests, including electromagnetic, vibration, shock, thermal vacuum, and acoustic examinations. Good. Like you said, Manila, the last thing you want is a year-long trip, that thing to, you know, run into some kind of technical difficulty when it's way out in the cosmos somewhere that you can't necessarily get access to it. Yeah, absolutely. A new theory may have answered the question as to why the planet Venus rotates. According to the theory, the reason for Venus rotation is due to a process called tidal locking. Tidal locking is when a smaller object rotates around a larger object without spinning, like the motion of the Earth, a moon around Earth, or Mercury around the Sun. Venus is close enough to the Sun that it shouldn't be tidally locked, but instead spins slowly. The reason it rotates at all is because it's extremely thick atmosphere. Its extremely fast winds drag the planet drag along the planet's surface, loosening the sun's grip on the planet enough that it rotates, albeit slowly. So slow, in fact, that a day on Venus is longer than a Venusian year. The planet only takes 224 Earth days to make its trip around the Earth. That's amazing. So in the time it takes it to go around the Earth, it hasn't completed one day yet. The sun. No, no, no. Like, right, right. In the time, thank you. In the time it takes Venus to go around the sun, 224 days, it hasn't even done one day technically, because right. it takes so long for it to Well, because its own revolution. Yeah, it's so slow. On its own, oh, not an axis, but it... Oh, I know what you mean. Just, it's, yeah, it's revolution on its axis. Yeah, his it's own spin. so slow. Yeah, so, so slow. Yeah. And, I mean, I love the fact that they brought the moon into it, because if you notice the dark side of the moon, the moon is tightly locked with Earth, and so it just kind of goes around, and we only see one very specific side of it. No, fascinating stuff. In holiday news, we have National Bulldogs, a beautiful day. Yay, Bulldogs. Cold House Bulldogs. National High Five Day. High five. High five. Oh, I'm going to it, it oh. okay. All right, there High we go. High Five Day. And National Kindergarten Day, first day of summer in Iceland. I got married in Iceland. What? Yeah, I got married in Iceland. We can go back to it. Okay. But, but yeah, Iceland is a weird place, man. It looks like the dark side of the moon. Talking about the dark side of the moon. Um, this day in history in 1910, Samuel, Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, author of the novel Huckleberry Finn, died at the age of 74. In 1960, Brazil inaugurated its new capital, Brazil Brasilia. In 1975, South Vietnamese President Nguyen Van Thieu resigned. In 1980, Rosie Ruiz was the first woman to cross the finish line at the Boston Marathon. She was later disqualified for cheating. How do you even cheat, though? <laughs> How do you cheat in a marathon? I don't know. I mean, like, like Lance Armstrong used to um, stop in a bus, get on the bus, no. jump up. 
Yes, he did. Oh, Get you didn't know this? No. He's so he used to dope, right? He used to give himself oh, I, I the blood stuff, like the epo, like epo The blood, yeah. Yeah, something. it's a blood builder. So what, epo, you, what is this bus stuff? Bus. Yeah, bus. Like one of the things they used to do when they were doing these marathons, he used to exchange his blood stuff. I'm serious. Look me up. Um, producers, fact check me on that. He used to stop at a bus. This is not all the events, but in, at the very least, at the very least, at one, and I suspect more. Stop at a bus, get the blood transfusion or the EPO and all of that stuff. Get back on the road. Producers, fact check me. They'll fact check me. Trust me. What on earth? But this is what? What is? But this one is a race though. 1980. A yeah, lady? this is 1980. I mean, Rosie yeah, Ruiz. 1980. So. How, how do you, you cheat with cheat, that? How do you cheat on a foot race? I don't know. This is a foot race. That's a, a good marathon, question. But I still, don't know. Unless somebody drove you from point A to point B right. and you just get out the car and just but like, there are oh, people. Oh, this there is are a... people all along the sides. That's what I would so think, too. How do you cheat? Unless you fall so far behind, there's nobody else nearby. I don't know how that works, though. You're right. I don't know how that and, works. And this is 1980, so it's not like there are these, like, bird scooters outside. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Scoot you around. Right. That she's part. scooting around down the Boston Marathon track. The I'm, only thing I, uh, unless I she signs up for the event. Drives the car to get to a certain point, gets on the track, and then just keeps going. That's, I can't because otherwise I don't know how it works. She's in, in a foot race. There are no like cell phone cameras, and right. no, So I don't know. I guess there are, there are sneaky ways to do it in yeah. 1980. I just don't know how they pull that off. But how do you? Yeah, and in she's like, race, I'm no the less. first woman. Because you know, with bicycles, you the distances are so long. I mean, you're talking about like hundreds of miles, right? Right. And so you're not you're not going to have everybody. Is this 20, 26k, 25k. Yeah, exactly. Like the that. race. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know what the race the marathon, is. Marathon, Boston Marathon's like twenty. I don't know. Yeah. I want to say it's like twenty. I'm very curious how she pulled that off. Very curious. Yeah. I in 1995, it. Timothy McVeigh was arrested in connection with the Oklahoma City bombing. And in 1997, the ashes of Timothy Leary, Gene Ridenberry, and 22 others, excuse me, were blasted into space for the first space funerals. I'm going to resist the urge to talk about that. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I'm not quite sure how that one works per se. Um, oh, I know. You asked me earlier um, about Gonzo Lira. And you were saying, why are people talking about him? Guys, can you cue this clip up for me? This is the Gonzo Lira clip that I basically sent. So Lira was on the ground um, in Ukraine, and he was covering the war for all intents and purposes. And as he's covering the war, he was supposed to go on George Galloway's show. I think right. this was three or four days ago, and he never showed up. Right. And one of the things that appeared on his, I don't know what page this appeared on, but this was definitely him. He said this. Let's play this. So I want you guys to know that if ever you don't hear from me for 12 hours hmm, during this conflict— if it's 12 hours or more, assume that I've been picked up by the SBU and assume that the people most responsible are the Daily Beast. The Daily Beast, who deliberately lied about me, claiming that I'm not in Kharkov, admitted to the fact that people are looking for me and want to get a hold of me in the very hit piece that they wrote and that they contacted the Ukrainian government to make them aware that I'm in Kharkov, make them aware of my significance, make them aware so they can send some SBU goons to get me. Understand what the Daily Beast has done. And when I said, you know, in the, in the title of this, that the Daily Beast wants to kill me, I'm not being hyperbolic. So, yeah, so this is him basically saying, look, the Daily Beast, and I'm, I, I experienced this through my own lens also political reporter, for example, trying to do an interview and then contacting um, uh, YouTube 
and other channels to get us basically removed. So it's like, hey, could you come and do an interview with us? Oh, and then go behind the scenes in order to contact one of the channels, YouTube, and I was like, schedule political misfits, and I forget one of the other shows. And this very specific situation, you had him basically there, giving reporting on the ground, people attacking him. The Daily Beast comes up with an article, and to his point, they were apparently contacting people in the same way that Political was or some of the other places were doing for like Rumble to get people removed or like they did try to do CNN with the FCC trying to get Sputnik removed. Well, they did that in the middle of a war zone to basically Ukrainian forces. Like basically doxing. Yes. Yeah. Doxing. Doxing a reporter for all intents and purposes. And it's like, what do you think neo-Nazis is going to do to the guy who's on the ground in that area reporting on your crimes and whatnot in that particular um, war? probably not going to treat him well. And so, look, we don't know as a flat fact what happened right. to Lear. Um, we're just kind of waiting in the end of dark like everybody else. But of course, that video has put people's minds in a particular framework of he is in a war zone. He's in a hostile area. And well, he's not saying that stuff for no reason. Exactly. Yeah. He's, he's not he's not calling out the SBU just because he's yeah. just picking out random three-letter yeah. agencies. Oh, I just don't like that agency, so I'm going to point them out. No, it's not that. There's a reason. Yeah, he's there. He sees it himself. He sees the human shields. He sees the people that were basically being killed by these organizations. And even if you want to take all this stuff out, he's in the middle of a war zone. Right. How do states behave when they're in a war zone that they're losing? And it becomes this kind of existential thing for the country itself. Well, it seems like in, in mainstream American press, Ukraine is both fearlessly, you know, fiercely fighting and winning, yes. but also losing. Yeah, it's very weird. Somehow. It's a weird contradiction. Yeah, I, I don't know how to frame what's happening. I don't know how that like works how they either. justify it. Because we get people who would be, my mom would say, well, the, the press acts like they're winning. And I was like, think about what you're saying for the moment. <laughs> like, mom. think about the cities that are being surrounded. Think about, uh, like, she knows that she's saying that jokingly, but she's saying that because she was like, when I look at the media, they look like they're doing this and they look like they're doing that. And it's like, they may look that way on the ground. It's something different. Let's do this. Let's, I, we have a guest ready. But I definitely want to bring him up because that's somewhat of a big deal to me. These guys are basically outing another journalist in order to have that person basically killed. Doxing is a thing now. Yes. Journalists doxing journalists. That's astonishing. It's That's astonishing. Like eating your own children. Like this is just, you don't do that. Yes. No, you don't do that. Not in, under the best of circumstances. Certainly not in a situation where he's on the ground and his life is at risk. Those are your head. Um, you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment with the one and only voice of wisdom, Mark Sloboda. Back shortly. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my lovely co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, please give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and a course. You can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. And I'm going to go back to the way I started, basically, um, to the beginning and the way we started the monologue. A commander with the Ukrainian Marines fighting Russian forces in Moropol said his forces may were, quote, 
may be facing our last days, if not hours, unquote, as Russia's issues new ultimatum for those fighters inside the plant to basically lay down their weapons and come out and surrender. Quote, the enemy is num- outnumbering us 10 to 1. Um, this is Suri Volna from the 36th Separate Marine Brigade as he appealed for extraction from the last stronghold in Maripol in a Facebook post on Wednesday. And it's clear at this point that these people are basically out of munitions, out of water, food. They talk about hospital services basically being completely destroyed. Quote, we appeal to the world. We plead to all the world leaders to help us. He said in a video, we ask them to use the procedure of extraction and to take us to the territory of a third party state. And it seems that he is out of his mind if he thinks that a foreign military is going to break in and get them out. But so is the situation to which we are presented. To have a conversation, we're joined with the one and only, I always call him the voice of reason, Mark Sloboda. He's an international relations and security analyst. Mark, thank you for joining us this morning. How are you doing? Tomorrow, Manila, thanks for having me on. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Fault Lines. It is always an honor and a pleasure to have you. I find this to be a mass waste of life. Um, the Moripal thing is aggravating to me on so many levels. I mean, honestly, the entire war is aggravating to me. It's a catastrophe that didn't necessarily need to take place. You have all of these people losing their lives. For what? Geopolitical gamesmanship. And so in this very specific situation, they're clearly surrounded. They're clearly out of weapons. Many of the people are ill or sick or injured. And then you have a situation where it's maybe like 2,000 people that are basically left. Russia gives them multiple opportunities to lay down their weapons and to come out, and they don't do it. And there's reports that there are, let's say, a mandate from Kiev to not do it. That's the interesting part. And then that's what I want to get into. Is there any let's say, evidence beyond the Russian position that communiques and everything else was coming out basically saying you have an order not to surrender and that if you do, you will basically be executed using some kind of military um, ground um, reasoning behind it. What's going on with this, Mark? I mean, this seems senseless. Yeah, um, so there is, there is some evidence. Um, and, and again, this is one of the many uh, aspects of uh, the conflict there that's simply not repeated by the Western mainstream media because it doesn't fit the narrative that they're trying to, to sell. But uh, there, f- first of all, um, there have been a number of times uh, over the recent weeks where uh, there have been uh, individual or small groups of uh, uh, Kiev regime um, militant forces who attempted to surrender uh, to uh, the Russian military forces uh, and and the forces of of the the Donbas republics in Mariupol, uh, um, they were uh, approaching Russian lines, uh, wearing uh, carrying uh, the white flag of surrender, and uh, their bodies were found shot in the back. Um, and then, um, just in the last forty eight hours, uh, some five Kiev regime uh, forces managed to escape and surrender. Uh, And they brought with them copies of the documents signed by the deputy head of the Kiev regime National Guard, which is essentially Azov, that any uh, Kiev regime armed forces uh, who attempt to surrender or leave their positions uh, are to be executed immediately. By Azov. Wow. And now, if you'll notice in the requests made, both by 
this uh, Sergei uh, Volina, who is uh, the commander of the of the Kiev regime's 36 Marines Brigade. There are a few other Marines. Uh, they were mostly at another location. The majority of of the uh, up to 2,000 uh, militant forces are of the A's, the neo-Nazi uh, death squad, uh, the Azov Regiment. Uh, their national headquarters was placed in Mariupol after they suppressed the uprising by the people against the new regime there in 2014. They asked specifically uh, to be uh, allowed out uh, to a unspecified third-party country. And and you got to wonder, hmm, if they're prisoners of war, you know, whether they would be taken by Russia or they might ask to be restored uh, to the Kiev regime. No, they want to go to a third country. Why? Because their punishments for leaving their positions would be death. That's why. I was trying to figure, I was like, third country, what are they talking about? Why are you going to a third country? That makes sense. Yeah, Mark, that makes sense. That's that's the only thing that makes sense for for that specific request. Right. Uh, So that's that's what we're we're dealing with here. Um, And of course, you know, with along numbers of these being Azov, right, they're they're fanatics and and they perfectly are willing to fight to the end rather than to surrender to Russia. Uh, Their their numbers have been whittled down from they started with uh, some over 8000 forces in um, uh, Mariupol, um, and about 1400 of various forces have surrendered over the course, uh, of the last month, uh, plus of conflict. Uh, but, uh, there's 2000 left and you can do the math and, and figure out how many are, are, are no longer with us because of their, you know, dogged, if doomed neo-Nazi resistance. And, and probably most important is that about 142,000 civilians have been evacuated from the city. That is according to the defense minister, uh, Sergei Shoigu. So I think that 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 is not being reported in Western mainstream media because it obviously doesn't support the narrative that the evil Russians are just slaughtering left and right, young and old, you know, mothers, babies. Uh, it doesn't support that narrative, but yet, I mean, there there are people on the ground that are reporting this, um, and obviously RT.com has done a great job with uh, updating all these numbers as as we go. Uh, but yet, again, none of this news is making it out here to the states, and people are not. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, actually, what what they're reporting is is the line from. Uh, uh, the Kiev regime, that uh, the people of Mariupol are being mass deported to Russia, That's, <laughs> like like as if they're at gunpoint. Uh, that 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 is the narrative that is being sold, and in its stenographer, in stenographer yes. style, it is being repeated unquestioning by uh, the Western media, uh, without any any further comment there. And there are dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews uh, that have been done, translated into English, countless of the people talking about what they went through in Mariupol. And the vast, vast majority of them 
are uh, they were held against their will by Azov and the other Kiev regime forces in the area. They were prevented from using humanitarian quarters. Firing positions were set up on their buildings. They were shoved in the basements. If they attempted to flee, they were shot. Um, uh, the buildings uh, were shelled. Their own buildings were shelled in many uh, cases by uh, Azov forces. I mean, there was no love lost there. I mean, Mariupol went to Donbass in 2014, and Azov was brought in to crush them, and then they set up their national headquarters there to keep the jackboot on the people of Mariupol's neck. Uh, so there, there was no love lost uh, between them there, um, and um, the you know these these reports. I mean, as if. Uh, hundreds of thousands, you know, 140 some thousand people have been forcibly deported against their will and are being held at gunpoint in Russia. This is, of course, absurd propaganda. Um, and the fact that the Western mainstream media won't show the interviews with any of these people, except for a, a select few that, that do have Kiev regime and, and Azov sympathies um, is really telling. Uh, but eventually the truth will get out about what has happened here. I mean, it's not even just on the TV. You know, it's not that you you turn on the 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 dumb box and that's all you hear. It's literally the, the information is being blockaded on the Internet. I mean, Google, social media, Google itself, which is the parent company of, you know, is basically the Internet as we know it. Google is blocking Anything that they deem, and it's at their discretion, that they deem is downplaying the, the veracity of any of the information coming from the Kiev regime, and any if you say anything bad about, yeah, YouTube, they own YouTube. YouTube demonetized anyone who says that Ukraine is killing its own people, which of course, flies in the face that there has been a civil conflict in the country for the last eight years. And of course, the regime in Kiev, you know, since it seized power in 2014 with open U.S. support, has been killing its own people for the last eight years, bombing and shelling them in Donbass. Um, and, 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 you know, that has continued up until the present day. This is this is like China, guys. Like this is I mean, the people on the right criticize China blocking the internet and oh my god they don't have they don't have Instagram they don't have Facebook and then oh my god they can't look things up on on Google well what do you think is happening here I think their mindset is well you can look up anything you want as long as it doesn't challenge our narrative <laughs> like as long as as long as we don't agree with it you have full freedom to look up whatever Outside you want of that yeah um Mark this is <clears throat> so let me answer me something on this. So this morning, Russia's turned over a draft peace agreement to Ukraine. Now, this is interesting because initially when the negotiations were taking place in Turkey, Ukraine had put a few things on the table. Basically, we won't be aligned with NATO, something that if they would have accepted in the beginning, the war would have never taken place. But let's put that to the side for the moment. Um, what is Russia's um, agreement? What is their draft document? I haven't necessarily been able to find specific details what's in the document, but I'll just read the report. It says Russia handed over their draft peace document to Ukraine. The Ukrainian side was handed a draft peace document with clear wording in it. Now the ball is on the side of Kiev. Moscow is waiting for a reaction. And this is Peskov saying this, Dmitry Peskov. Um, what's the reality on this document? Yeah, we 
we don't know. I mean, there uh, has has not been any uh, firm word uh, coming out of the Kremlin about uh, what is in this document. Um, whether it is is uh, there has been uh, requests from the UN Secretary General to hold a uh, ceasefire over the Orthodox Easter. Uh, he he had asked for it to start today to extend over uh, Sunday and 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 for uh, at least I think there was he was asking for six days. Um, uh, it, it has to be said that neither side has has been committal uh, on that, but it may have been in that proposal. Uh, but other than that, if 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 it's beyond that, if 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 it's some new Russian position. Uh, in the negotiations, uh, either, uh, you know, w- more willing to, to uh, compromise or less, uh, we, don't, we don't know yet. Uh, but we have heard um, uh, just, in, again, in the last 24 hours from uh, the Kiev regime's uh, foreign minister, Kuluba, that they are not interested in diplomatic settlement. They are not interested in peace negotiations and that this will be settled on the battlefield. Those are his words. Now, on on that note, Mark, I mean, whether it's peace or total domination or whatever it may be, this is bound to come to an end. Even Afghanistan came to an end. Even Vietnam came to an end. If we fast forward to the end, what does this all look like in Europe? Because Germany is still very reliant on Russian natural gas. Nord Stream 1 is still operating. Uh, Angela Merkel fought tooth and nail to make Nord Stream 2 happen. Um, she fought Trump on it. And even when Biden came into office, she made one of her made it a point for one of her last pit stops before she retired was that she come talk to Biden and say, dude, this is happening. Like it or not, this is happening. And then she dropped the mic and went back to Germany. And then Nord Stream 2 was about to happen. And then, unfortunately, this conflict got in the way. Olaf Scholz gets into office and plugs the pipe. So what does this do to the greater, the broader European relations with Russia when all of this stuff comes to an end? Okay, it is to be said that, I mean, this could end theoretically, you know, next week or the week after. It is more likely to drag out for months or years. And I think a, a good measure of that uh, is, uh, you know, the, the Russian intervention in Syria with, uh, you know, the U.S. continuing to militarily occupy East Syria, Turkey, the north, uh, and, you know, uh, basically a, a continuous stream of both conflict and diplomatic relations going on. That That is entirely possible here. At the end of the day, this is going to end either with the partition or the balkanization of Ukraine, the only question is, where are those lines, right? And what is the regime in Kiev that comes out the other side of that? Um, But for broader European security, um, it's not good, right? Because we are looking well past a cold war, a new cold war at this point. We We are on the fringes of a hot war, right? I mean, uh, the, the West is, is directly delivering uh, military, uh, uh, you know, weapons, 
lethal weapons into combat that are killing Russian soldiers. Uh, uh, NATO is is expanding east uh, even further in the midst of this. Um, economic relations have almost been completely severed now, and Europeans are uh, states are making pie in the sky promises that they will. Uh, manage to wean themselves off Russian energy, even as Russia is saying, yeah, and we're going east and, and <laughs> we're building more pipelines and more trainage links to China and to other countries. This is a great decoupling. And, um, you know, just on an economic scale, I don't think that there is a return to normal, uh, not in the foreseeable future, probably not in our lives. Right. Wow. There is going to be no return to normal relations. Be uh, it's certainly not in economic or political terms uh, between uh, Russia and uh, the NATO states in Europe uh, in, in, in anything that anyone can see going into the future. So any Western companies that are still holding out hopes that, oh, well, this will blow over in a few months and we'll be able to come back and do business in Russia, you know. Well, I'd, I'd reinvest your money elsewhere. And Mark, as, as you, you warn of the threat of a potential actual hot war, um, I mean, that can be perceived as World War III, maybe not, or maybe it's, you know, just an expansion of, of some sort of smaller conflicts, as Joe Biden called it. Um, but yesterday, Russia had the launch of the new RS-28 Sarmat ICBM. And John Kirby says, oh, that's, well, at first he kind of, said it was kind of a threat. Then it comes out that the Russians warned the Pentagon that they were testing something and not to freak out. And then he said, oh, yeah, well, they, they warned us. So it, which, which is it? Is it? Is it the case that the Russians are flexing their military might of this brand new ICBM? Is it that uh, the Pentagon wanted to hide, uh, obfuscate that fact? For some reason, like, oh, I don't know, scaring the American people. Uh, what is going on here? Is, the, is it a flex and is it is it a threat? Yeah, I, I think it is all of the above. <laughs> right. And it, it, they are not mutually exclusive. Uh, one, uh, you know, Russia followed all the forms for a, a test of, of a weapon that everyone has long been aware of. Um, and, you know, uh, this again, this this other uh, hypersonic missiles, everything has all been Russia's asymmetric response to the U.S. unilaterally pulling out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty uh, uh, in 2003 and putting missile defense in Europe under the ridiculous claim that it was there for non-existent Iranian nuclear weapons. And Russia said, you do this. We're going to have to take measures to ensure that our strategic deterrent uh, continues to deter and to deny you some type of uh, first strike uh, capability uh, against us. And that's that's what they've done. And this is following through and doing it now. All right. There's there's definitely timetables for these things, but almost certainly uh, there is a decision made that this will further stress to NATO that you do not want to intervene on our intervention. We're regime changing your regime change in Ukraine. And if you interfere with that, then we're going to have words or we're going to have more than words. Kinetic uh, uh, action. Quite, quite opposite. Yeah, kinetic. That would that would be the Pentagon uh, type of, of terminology. There might be kinetic consequences. Yeah. And that's um, a, 
so and this is demonstrating, you know, the, the power of Russia's strategic deterrent. And overwhelmingly, right, the U.S. has a overwhelmingly uh, conventional military advantage over Russia. Of course, it's not all gathered in theater and of the type to stage a land invasion of Russia or something of the sort. And uh, 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 the U.S.'s uh, European NATO allies are even worse on that regard. But, right, if NATO shifted to a conventional conflict with Russia, eventually they could uh, marshal the military and economic forces necessary and that are far superior to Russia's. There's no question. The U.S. alone spends more than 10 times what Russia does uh, easily, um, you know, on, on its military in a year. But Russia's strategic deterrent, therefore, is more important to Russia's national security than it is to the United States because of that conventional mix match. Yes, agreed. One of the things I want to jump to has to do with the Wall Street Journal having a conversation. Well, man, there's so much I want to hear with you. But let's go to the Wall Street Journal. So Mohammed bin Salman, and this gets into the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States. And they're trying to kind of go into why and how that relationship has basically degraded. And we've seen trial balloons of them basically saying, hey, we're, we're considering the petro yuan. We've seen China drop billions of dollars into Saudi Arabia and expanding the relationship with China in that situation. And with the U.S. being a world oil supplier in and of ourselves, it seems that there have been a few things. Trump's relationship with, um, with Mohammed bin Salman, all of these things kind of play into the weakening of the relationship. So Wall Street Journal is basically making a point. And I'll just read the top part because the part is awesome. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman wearing shorts at his seaside palace <laughs> sought a relaxed tone for his first meeting with President Biden's National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan last September. The 36-year-old Crown Prince ended up shouting at Mr. Sullivan after he raised the 2018 killing of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The, the prince told Sullivan he never wanted to discuss this matter again that people familiar with the exchange and that the U.S. could forget about its request to boost oil production. Isn't that amazing? So he's basically. Don't you want to be a fly on the wall man. there? Oh, my God. <laughs> you have That's no idea. <laughs> that is entertainment. I love the fact that they start with that. He says he's wearing shorts in a seaside palace. At and a he, seaside palace. Yeah. <laughs> shorts and, and flip-flops. And shouts at Jake Sullivan. That's amazing. There's also this kind of weird thought of, wait a minute, this is a guy that has somebody deboned. <laughs> <laughs> does does that come up? Does that come with ground hosogi in it? All right, yeah, you know, right, right, oh. right. <laughs> oh, that's so wrong. But I guess my point is, this is severe consequences in regards to one dollar hegemony, because if the petrodollar becomes under challenge. What does that mean for the dollar situation? I mean, there's that part. But also just this relationship from the standpoint of Saudi Arabia and oil in general and this ignoring of Biden's request to increase the amount of oil production, even from the standpoint of like OPEC doing the same thing. Yeah, we're not going to do this. We're not going to raise this. Ooh, but before, before you answer, Mark, we should also note that today, or it might have happened overnight because obviously the time difference, but Israel has taken up the yuan as some extra of their reserve currency. So that's a big deal. So if the Saudis are going to weigh, and it sounds like they're leaning towards saying yes to, you know, doing deals, big deals in yuan. Now, Israel is also considering that as a backup reserve. That's, there's a lot of things happening going in the favor of 
China, Mark. Hey, you know, um, I had this argument with Ian Bremmer of the Eurasia policy uh, on Twitter just a few weeks ago. And, um, uh, you know, I was saying, well, you know, this is this is the beginning of the end of dollar hegemony. And, you know, he was arguing all against it. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, sure enough, the fact of both the U.S. and the E.U., you know, seizing the currency reserves and blocking the financial transactions of a great power is going to make other countries say, huh, the same thing could be done to us. Maybe we should diversify our foreign currency reserves a bit more. I mean, logic, right? And and Saudi Arabia is certainly one of those countries. But even if, if you know, U.S. ally Israel, right, you know, the, the sacred cow of American politics is doing the same, well, then, you know, you, you really need to reassess. And that is, you know, entirely foreseen blowback uh, from taking, you know, this this route of economic warfare to this extent against Russia. Um, and, you know, of course, people are going to question the safety of, of dollar and euro reserves. And China is the next, you know, other than, you know, say cryptocurrencies, gold and the like is is the next uh, biggest uh, currency uh, to invest in. And it should not be any surprise to anyone, but somehow it's still presented as if it's some shocking development. Mark, we're coming to the end. We have about a few minutes left. And I wanted, before we close, hit on this notion, I think this is two, two conversations. One has to do with Finland and Sweden pushing to join NATO. There's that. But there's also this conversation about the security agreement between China and the Solomon Islands. Um, we probably can't get to both. So I'll just let you choose which one um, is that much more significant between the two, because um, both of those things are somewhat equal to me in regards to their interests. Um, what are your thoughts on either of those stories? OK, well, real quickly, the fear over the Solomon Islands. I mean, the hypocrisy is absurd, right? Ukraine has the right to, uh, uh, you know, agency to make their own sovereign security decisions. But obviously, I count the number of people in U.S. and Australian foreign policy circles that are not calling for regime change in the Solomon Islands right now. And, uh, you know, also the fur over, oh, my God, China might have one base outside the Pacific while the U.S. has well over some 800 military bases around the world and and see, you know, the way they talk, how this one base it's not even a base, just basing rights, right? They're not even talking about building the brace as such a threat, right? Well, how do you think other countries feel about those other uh, uh, 800 uh, plus U.S. military bases around the world, plus the U.K. and the France, which are the, the next two uh, in, in terms of numbers? Uh, Finland and Sweden, they have long been de facto NATO members, right? Um, they are, are constantly doing uh, military exercises, training, uh, working on interoperability, uh, buying equipment from from uh, you know uh, NATO stock that is compatible. Um, they were just looking for the excuse uh, to enter NATO, and the biggest problem was public sentiment was against it in Finland, uh, in both countries really. And now with the hysteria, uh, you know, that is being generated, the mob russophobic mentality over, oh my God, a country invaded another, as if that hasn't happened. In the last 30 years, we haven't seen interventions by other by you know the U.S. and its allies, and you know half a dozen uh, more countries in the Middle East and across 
um, uh, that is being used now as the opportunity to get Finland and Sweden uh, in NATO. It's probably both of them will probably enter within a year or a year and a half. It, like I said, this has already long been a reality. Russia has long accustomed themselves to us. The situation is not the same. Of course, they're going to respond by militarizing what is essentially, you know, a very lightly. Uh, militarized border between Russia and Finland, and they will have to point some nuclear weapons in that direction. And it's going to make everyone's security less stable as a result. But hey, geopolitics, right? Wow. Mark, as always, thank you, my man. I always appreciate your analysis. Yeah. Mark Sloboda, Voice of Reason, International Relations and Security Analyst. You can follow Mark on Twitter at MarkSloboda1 and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Gramsci. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Shan, we'll be back. We're going to have a debate from, let's say, uh, Macron and Le Pen. It's only going to be one part of that debate, but at the very least, you'll be able to hear some of the stuff that was taking place last night. But you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And share this video. We have 514 live viewers watching. It took a while for us to hit that 500 mark. We've been trying to hit 600. And so I think this is the first show that you and I have been on together where we've hit over 500. So I'm going to give applause to that one. Was it? I feel like we've hit that have already. The, yeah. I've been monitoring. Yeah. During the live. Okay. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm yeah. wrong. Okay. Maybe I'm wrong. 600. 600. The, the next goal, 600. 600. Yes, the next goal is 600. Right. Gotta hit 600. So share this video. Share it, share it far, share it wide. But I wanted to get, have a conversation. You know, there's the election that is taking place in France, um, Marie Le Pen versus Macron. And Macron initially had all sorts of somewhat of an overwhelming lead. That lead has basically been eaten up on some level. He's still expected to win, especially in the runoff that's supposed to take place over uh, this week, uh, I guess over the weekend. But I have two clips from the debate. One is from Le Pen. One is from Macron. And I really do believe this is the crux of the argument between these two. What does it mean to be, let's say, France first? France first. And does that mean that you align your foreign policy with the U.S. and NATO? Or does it mean you align your foreign policy from the standpoint of what is in the interest of France? And this is not me rah-rahing either of these people. It's just kind of pointing out. You make the determination of the difference between these two people. So let's play the first clip. I believe this is Le Pen. Let's play Le Pen. We need to be careful. Delivering weapons to Ukraine could turn France into a co-belligerent. That is the concern. I agreed with all of the sanctions uh, taken against uh, Russian oligarchs and banks, but the only sanction that I disagree with is, uh, is the ban on imports of Russian oil and gas, because I don't think that is the right method. I don't think that is what will hurt Russia. But I do believe it will hurt the French people very much. And I do believe that blocking such imports will have unintended consequences. And I hear that uh, negotiations will begin after France loses the uh, presidency of the EU. But the consequences will be cataclysmic, not just on private citizens, but also businesses. So I believe that we cannot fall on our swords 
simply hoping that this will hurt Russia financially. Russia can just sell its oil and gas to other countries. So that was the only caveat that I expressed. Now, she's not entirely wrong on that, right? I mean, Germany was saying their industry would basically collapse if it didn't have Russian gas. And inflation at this point, not just in the United States, but also in Europe, is easily over 10%. And that's just at the beginning of this, meaning we're only, what, two months in. And so they're calling for basically a world recession and everything else, and the industries of Europe require the gas. So she's not wrong. Right. I don't think she's wrong. It's being a realist. Yes. Or is, well, here's the thing. Um, if we want to, in a nutshell, you know, compare her to somebody domestically, okay, we can say she's like a, a lady Trump. Yes. Right? Yes. Like, it's not, that's not totally factually correct. But if, in a nutshell, we had to say she was like somebody. Give somebody, some example of what she's like in France. Yeah. Right. Like, so it's their version of, of Trump mm-hmm. in a lady. Macron, on the other hand, is, I would say, a boy version of Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. That's about right. Yeah. So that's really what we're, yeah. we're looking at Trump versus Clinton. A rematch. French style. Yep. And the same people, the same powers that back Emmanuel Macron, all the big banks, all the, you name it. Mm-hmm. Everybody that's ever backed Hillary Clinton backs Emmanuel Macron. That's right. So I'm not saying I'm pro Marine Le Pen or any, nothing. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, if you are not into, again, not in the QAnon sense, like the new world order where we're all just one big global society, where there's no differentiation between the U.S. and France and China, if that's your thing, Emmanuel Macron's your guy. He's your guy. He's a globalist. That's right. He wants... Johnson & Johnson to be like the main pharmaceutical company for the whole world. Yeah. He wants everybody to have the same drugs, the same meds, the same bank, the same everything. We all have the same, so similar that we're the same. Whereas Marine Le Pen's like, no, keep France, France. Yeah. Which, I mean, if anyone's ever been to France, like, that's why you get the hell out of the U.S. for a little while. Yeah. If you can afford it, go to Paris for a little bit. I, luckily, as a journalist, you know, was living abroad and traveled abroad a lot. So I got to experience a lot of Europe. And I loved that things were different. Yeah. That it wasn't like America. And and hell, for America's sake, I'm a Californian. But I don't want to move somewhere in California, Virginia. Yeah. Or California, Where everything Texas. is the same. Yeah. Right. I don't want that. I wanted to, you know, when you travel state to state, I want to go eat that state's, you know, local food. If they have a different accent, I want to hear it. You want differentiation. Uh, right. Yeah. And that's what Marine Le Pen was going for. And it, it, people keep, yeah, maybe she's, she's a, little, a little nutty on the right saying some like in her the immigration stuff and then not mention her dad. I mean, there's some yeah, serious her dad issues. And stuff. Yeah. But here's the thing. They put up other, other people as candidates, I think, to soften her image. Yeah. Some people that are super, so far right, like Eric Zimor, um, he was like, if you thought Marine Le Pen was saying wacky Look stuff. This guy. Yeah. Eric right. Zimor is, was like, you're like, whoa, dude, you're the child of immigrants. Like, yeah. should you be saying that? Like, like, pick up your knuckles, man. Right. Pick up your knuckles. And But I think it was, you know, he was kind of there, put there to make her look less, you know, make her a little 
It moderates her. Yes. In a weird way. It softens her image a little bit. It's kind of like King and, well, it, this is a horrible yep. example. But I was going to say King and X where, you know, the, the fact that X was so um, radical is not necessarily the right word for it, but maybe it is. And King seemed, okay, that guy's a compromise. <laughs> right. Like, oh, not so bad. Yeah, he's not so bad. I think it's kind of like that. That's the point that you're making. It's like, well, you have one person who's, oh, my God, that person is off the reservation. She doesn't look so bad in comparison. It becomes that. And maybe it's working. Yeah. Because she's not that far behind. It's like 5 or 6%, like very close to the margin of error. So Marine Le Pen, I, I don't know. This, this is probably her last go, I, I think. This is like her third time. Yeah, it's it's a few times, yeah, that she's run. Um, yeah, and yeah, I agree. I think I feel you on that. I guess for me, the thing is, Macron, we have a clip from Macron, but you don't even have to hit a clip from Macron. Macron's thing is basically, well, you can't make the best decisions for France because you're in the pocket of Russia. And it's like, dude, she is talking specifically about whether or not it is in France's best interest to get rid of oil and gas. That's her point. And so if like, if you're talking, it's like, it's almost as if his argument is, Sometimes you have to make the hard choice and the hard choice means to eliminate oil and gas. And it's like, if that's what you're saying, you need to say that. You should say that. You should tell the French public, we are going to do this if I am the person who's elected president of this country or prime minister of this country. Because that's a massive deal. She's not. Look, this is no love for Le Pen. But when you're looking at Europe and like you're making a point about Nord Stream 2 and how, what's her name, went to the bat for it. She went to the bat for it because Angela. she realized they needed it. Yeah, Good Angela Merkel. Yeah. She's a realist. She's a realist. And this is kind of the argument that's taking place here. People who are just out of their minds. Oh, we need more sanctions. We need more economic war. We need more this. And it's like, dude, there is a darkening economic picture that is taking place in the West, um, in the United States, and in Europe. And you guys are continuously digging right. that hole. This is impacting the average French. I have exactly. French family there. Because, you know, the whole French colonization of Indochina and, you know, back. So I got, I got family, like yeah. blood relatives that are, are Parisian. and. These are people, I mean, I, so I hear it firsthand, mm -hmm. you know, from that they are feeling the economic crunch as we are here oh, yeah. with our own problems um, with not because I'm anti-green, I'm, I'm all for recycle and all that. But but when you talk about like just pulling the plug literally on oil and gas and, and without any backup, right, we don't have a strong enough backup plan in, you know, already the structure is not there to do that. Average Americans like us are literally feeling the pain at the pump. And the same goes for the, the Europeans, the, the people in Paris, the people in France. The French are, I mean, I don't know what it costs per liter right now for, for gas out there, for petrol. Um, but I know that they are feeling the pinch. And prior to the, the COVID era, there were weekly yellow vest oh, yes. marches, demonstrations, that was all about the economic problems that the French were having, and they were angry. That was basically a referendum against Emmanuel yes, Macron's was. policies. And they were going, what, protesting for like a year? A whole year straight. And if straight. you remember, all of that started because of an environmental thing. He tried to put the environmental changes on the backs of just typical French citizens in regards to the amount they were going to have gas to pay for oil and gas. And, yeah. Yes. And, and that's what sparked it off, and it became basically a, a, a workers' movement. Mm -hmm. The av I mean, you had nurses there, teachers there, the average French civilian. That's what they were there, you know, demonstrating that that his policies are hurting them, the mm -hmm. average person. But Americans, where are you? Yeah. Like Biden's policies are hurting the average person. Yes. Where are all of us? We're going to see, I suppose. And I guess that question also goes for France and the local populations in the UK and France. 
But you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Shan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe, welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And I am the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to the thriller and Thomas. Never ad lib. That, that's, that's one of those things. It's like it you say, it's you like, off, right? yeah, it, it, scrolls, it throws me off when I ad lib like that. Sometimes, sometimes you can like, sometimes you stick the landing, but sometimes it's like you're trying to do that stuff on the hey, fly. Even and it comes Simone Biles doesn't stick all her landings. All right, <laughs> right, so. right. It's like, but still try nonetheless. Still all try right, nonetheless. That's all right. Um, but we have a caller, so let's go to the caller right off the bat. We have Daniel. Daniel, what's going on, my man from San Antonio? Oh, um, yes, I'm driving in Mississippi today. And about the local uh, food, if you're ever in Lafayette, Louisiana, try a Bodine ball. A Bodine, a Bodine ball? ball? What's okay. that? A Bodine ball. Um, it's basically uh, rice mixed with uh, chicken, pork, and sometimes peppers. Just depends on what they put in it. And it's a ball? Like, is it deep fried or something to make it a ball? Well, well, Bodine link is more like a sausage filled ice and stuff and it starts being more vegetable like as you go closer to Houston and more meaty and more of that mix and it's made just a sausage with uh, animal you know what you call that thing the intestine uh huh interesting interesting Interesting, but it's called Bodine Ball I've not oh no no it's called Bodine in the um, intestinal tract like a sausage but they do but this one place in a uh, truck stop in Lafayette just mashes it up into a ball and it's awesome. Oh, oh I, see. I see. It's okay. the way they do it. Oh, okay. okay. Oh, I see. I I've see. never heard of that. Neither have I, but I've never been to Louisiana. No, I have. I've been to New Orleans. I've not. I I want to, but I have not. I've not done a whole lot of, of domestic travel. Yeah. yeah. But like I, but I do know that Californians have been splitting. Mm-hmm. They've been leaving California. That's right. <laughs> Running away yeah. uh, during this Gavin Newsom era. A lot of them are going to Texas, where the caller is from. Yeah. And, but they're but they're California-ing yeah. Texas. That is true. Like, that's why you left California. You left what California. Is it, unfortunately. Yes. So Daniel, am, am I right, Daniel? Yeah. Um, I One of my Uber drivers that took me back to my truck of uh, last week was from California and there's this um, thing between Whataburger and In-N-Out. Texans love their Whataburger, and I like the joke, um, Whataburger is where the bacon flows like a river. Oh. In-N-Out, they just like prevents it. Um, I want to talk about Salenti here and why I think he's all going in on uh, Never Surrender and to the last, and fight to the last Ukrainian. Um, I think the reason why, because Zelensky is a Jew, the people who are fighting the Russians, who are keeping this war, at least at the local level, are Nazis. Well, what a better way to get rid of all the Nazis but have the Russians kill them all? And I think that if you think about it in that context, 
That's very cynical. That's wow. That's like a double agent sort yeah, of. Yeah, that is extreme. So you're thinking that he's trying to get the Nazis killed. Yeah. Because he's a Jew. But keep in mind that also means that tens of thousands of innocent civilians are also going to be killed for him to be get rid of the Nazis. Nazi. I'm just I'm just wondering if if it's a little bit of pressuring from the United States, but I think he sees the irony of this because. I remember seeing an argument between an Azov battalion and Lewinsky. Lewinsky, yeah. Where he's like, I'm not a fool. I'm president or something to that effect. Yeah, they were basically saying, yeah, dude, you don't have any control over this. Yeah, and I'm like thinking like, well, they want to fight. Well, fight the last man. I I, I think it's cynical, but I think if there is something integral or inside Lewinsky still, I think he sees that, and he's like, okay. Probably doesn't know a way out more than anything else. Um, Daniel, thank you for that, man. And let's take one more call. David from NYC. Uh, give him about a minute. What's going on, my man? Uh, yes, I, I don't know if I can do it in a minute, but I'll try. A minute and a half. Uh, I want to take issue with something that you, you've repeatedly uh, opined on, Jamal. Oh, but uh, by the way, hi, hi Manila. The show, uh, nice to have you. Uh, uh, but you, you keep saying again and again that this could have been avoided if, 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 if Zelensky would only have uh, agreed to never join NATO. That's not that was not the reason why Russia invaded. They invaded to, to protect the Donbass, and, and at no point did Zelensky ever, ever uh, 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 agree to recognizing the, Don, the breakaway republics. He has never agreed to that, and that's an absolute requirement for uh, any, any peace deal. I do agree with you on that premise, on that point. But if you remember, the biggest issue was Ukraine could not be a part of NATO. It was three-pronged. Yeah. Three-pronged. I know, but they kept saying that, that it can't be a part of NATO, it can't be a part of NATO, and it can't be a part of NATO. Because if you remember, the war in the Donbass region had been taking place for eight years. It's not that it's great. It's more so that that's been going on for a long time. If that was the premise of it all, why not attack the first year, or the second year, or the third? Listen to Putin. Putin, Putin said the reason the, 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 the dialogue, the, the negotiations are deadlocked is exactly because Ukraine will not agree to, to uh, recognize the breakaway republic. That's Putin's words. That's after the war. That's after the war started. Meaning, the moment that you're in a war and the military situation changes and you start losing the military situation, yeah, the demands are going to increase. I've said that before. No, there was no, there was no way Russia would ever have accepted uh, a, a, a peace deal without, without uh, a recognition. No, no, you're missing what I'm saying. They wouldn't need a peace deal if there was no war in the first place. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Like, the initial demands mainly was Ukraine can't be a part of NATO. They need to be non-aligned and they need to be independent. At the point where that war started, then, yeah, the demands were very clear. We're going to secure the Dumbass. We're going to create the land bridge to Moripal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think, I think you misstate when you, keep, when you keep on repeating that point. But you haven't proven your point. You haven't made your point. I made the very specific case that the beginning of this, when this conflict started, it was one main issue. Ukraine is not going to be part of NATO. After the war started, then yeah, the demands increased and the demands became far more specific in regards to what they needed in order to end the conflict. By your own words, by the way. You said, wait, wait, by your own words. You said it yourself. You was like, well, they're not going to accept a peace deal without the Donbass region being part of that peace deal. Okay, but the peace deal insinuates that a war had already began. That's kind of what I'm getting at. This stuff came up after the war started where they were like, okay, fair enough. We're going to settle this stuff on the battlefield and here are our demands to end this conflict. But the conflict had started at that point. Even before the war, okay, the, the, the Russian ethnic people were being genocided. I mean, people like to throw the word genocide around. Yes, they were killing ethnic Russian Ukrainians, yes. And, and Putin would not accept that. Correct. 
It went on for eight years. Oh, it got to a point where Putin would not accept it. No, 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 no. It went on for eight years. Eight years is a long time. That's nearly a decade. I guess the point I'm, the point I'm making here, if you're right, if you're right, then why did that go on for eight years? Putin said he should have intervened earlier. Okay, should, could have, would have, all that stuff is fine. I'm asking, it went on for eight years. If you're right, why did it go on for eight years? You covered up that point when you say the war didn't need to happen. No, you have not made your point. That's what I'm kind of making to you. You have not explained any of the stuff. I've made multiple points to explain where I'm coming from. I think you're just wrong on this. And we disagree. We disagree. Fair enough. We can agree to disagree. Yeah, we can agree to disagree. I'm fine with that. I think there's multiple points, and all I know is there was, in the eight years that I worked at RT America, we have covered what was happening in Donbass. So we did know when the numbers were 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, and climbed up to about 14,000 people by the time it was all said and done. So uh, there was definitely something happening there, and he had been complaining and telling the world about it. We were telling the world about it, but the world didn't want to hear it. Nobody cared. Now everybody cares. Now everybody cares. Let's do this. Let's get to our headlines. In the news. If you need to take you. Okay. Let's do this. In the news. Yeah, Let's go you, you do the news. You're and I'm going to slip away for a second. Okay. There because, we go. you know. I was trying to give you the opportunity in a clandestine no, way no, so nobody would know. No, you clandestine. If you don't see me here, it's because I walked to the bathroom. People go <laughs> potty. I mean, this is a three-hour show I'm with no to, breaks. I'm trying to help your modesty no. as a person. So it's like, it's like, why is Manila going? Yeah, no, I'm just going to take a potty break. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's, fair enough. Fair I'm trying enough. to teach my son how to potty. Oh, that's what. Potty. <laughs> so, like, so potty I need break. to be very clear about it when I go to the potty because I'm trying to give a good example for my son. Yes. Excellent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's do this. Let's get into the headlines. In the news. Republican State Representative Dave Williams of Colorado filed a lawsuit on Monday against Colorado's Secretary of State, Gina Griswold, upset that she would not include the conservative catchphrase of his nickname. Williams, who is running in Colorado's 5th Congressional District against incumbent Republican Representative Doug Lamborn, is suing to have his name on the June primary ballot as Dave Let's Go Brandon Williams. Williams, in this case, is arguing that Colorado law allows candidates to use nicknames. That is hilarious. Of course, you guys know, Let's Go Brandon was the famous phrase that was basically an allegory for F. Joe Biden. And this happened because during the race, um, the reporter was trying to gaslight um, the, the audience and the people were screaming F. Joe Biden. And the reporter says something like, well, oh, 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 they're, they're, they're so excited to see you, Brandon. They're saying, let's go, Brandon. Um, so it became this kind of allegory for F. Joe Biden. That's hilarious. Lieutenant Aaron Fowler, 29, a junior officer with the U.S. Navy, died on Sunday after he, quote, became unresponsive during, unquote, training at Marine Corps Base in Hawaii, in Alua. The service confirmed in a memo issued on Wednesday. Fowler, a resident of Oklahoma assigned to the Explosive Ordnance Disposal Mobile Unit 1, was in third and final phase of the Marine Corps Reconnaissance Leaders Course at the time of his death. The release detailed. Hmm. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shogu stated on Thursday that Maripol is liberated from Ukrainian forces and the order can now be restored in a Ukrainian city. However, he noted that the remaining radicals are still besieged at the Azovstal steel plant. Quote, during the liberation of the city, more than 4,000 militants were eliminated, 1,478 surrendered. The remaining group, more than 2,000, was blockaded in the industrial zone of the Azovstal steel plant. He added, Wilmington has banned 
Russia and Belarusian athletes from participating in this prestigious tournament. The ban has faced heavy criticism from those across the world, including top-ranked Serbian star Novak Djokovic, who slammed the decision. By the way, they did something similar to chess. They were basically going after people for thought crimes. And chess players that didn't necessarily toe the line were being ostracized. This is appalling. Just because an athlete has a country that they basically come from, how are you punishing the athlete for something the country is doing? And how is America, no less, doing that? Meaning, from the standpoint of America and all of the wars and the coups and everything else that basically have taken place as a result of our geopolitical decisions, not caring about the various local populations, what would it mean if those countries took that stuff out on individual Americans? Think about what we're saying for the moment. This is naked hypocrisy, to put it mildly. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has abandoned efforts to block a possible probe into the MPs in, uh, by MPs into whether he misled comments over Partygate Row, currently focusing on delaying the investigation. Government whips tried to derail labor-led attempts to trigger a Commons Privileged Committee inquiry into whether his earlier statements to Prime Ministers on Partygate amounted to contempt of Parliament. The Prime Minister initially insisted that all COVID rules were followed late last year when allegations of lockdown busting parties in Downing Street first surfaced. Look, Boris Johnson has a history of lying, so I wouldn't necessarily be shocked at all. And it's not even when be shocked. Everybody knows he's lying in this particular situation. Go back to the chemical strike or the chemical release that took place in the UK. I believe this was the Scorpions. And if you remember, Boris Johnson said he was told by the chemical lab in the UK that it came from the Russians. Now, when they talked to the people that were at the various chemical lab, Porter Down, I believe it's called, they basically said, we never told him that. That is a brazen, bold-faced lie. And I guess my point is, he has a history of lying in this way. And this very particular situation, Johnson is lying. Johnson is lying. In tech news, in preparation for the August launch, NASA's Psyche spacecraft recently underwent a series of tests to ensure that the years-long trip will not be in vain due to avoidable flaws in construction. The spacecraft was ultimately given the green light after undergoing a set of rigorous and taxing tests, including electromagnetic, vibration, shock, thermal vacuum, and acoustic examinations. In Earth and science news, a new theory may have answered the question as to why the planet Venus rotates. According to the theory, the reason for Venus rotation is due to a procedure or process called tidal locking. Tidal locking is when a smaller object rotates around a larger object without spinning like the moon around Earth or Mercury around the sun. Venus is close enough to the sun that it could be tidally locked, but instead of but instead of not spinning, basically spins slowly. The reason it rotates at all is because of the extremely thick atmosphere. The winds, or the extremely fast winds, drag along the planet's surface, loosening the sun's grip on the planet enough that it rotates, albeit very slowly. So slow, in fact, that a day on Venus is longer than a Venetian year. The planet only takes 224 days to make the trip around the sun. That is astonishing. If you think about the winds and everything else, and you think about this kind of heavy atmosphere, what happens if the atmosphere is going in a particular direction and it's kind of taking the planet along with it? Yeah, it's a planet, but if you think about the size of the atmosphere, the thickness of the atmosphere, and the scale and the size of the planet, is it enough to basically drag the country along very slowly in a particular direction? They're basically saying the answer is yes. In holiday new, we have National Bulldogs, a beautiful day. We have National High Five Day, National Kindergarten Day, first day of summer in Iceland. 
Again, I have fond memories of Iceland. I got married, like getting a divorce now. At the time, I got married in Iceland. This day in history in 1910, Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, author of the novel Huckleberry Finn, died at 74. In 1960, Brazil inaugurated its new capital, Brasilia. In 1975, South Vietnamese President Nguyen Van Thieu resigned. In 1980, Rosie Ruiz was the first woman to cross the finish line at the Boston Marathon. She was later disqualified for cheating. We're still scratching our head over how did you pull it off. Yeah, can't figure that one out. In 1995, Timothy McVeigh was arrested in connection with the Oklahoma City bombing. In 1997, the ashes of Timothy Leary, Gene Roddenberry, and 22 others were blasted into space for the first space funerals. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chance. We have the one and only John Kariaku here. So let's do this. Let's take a quick break. We're going to come back immediately with John. And we're going to be talking about his best friend, best buddy, Malcolm Nett. We're going to debunk the myth. (laughs) And I'm being sarcastic when I'm saying his best friends. But right, we're going to go into the myth that is Malcolm Nance, who's out there in in Ukraine, nowhere near the battlefield. Nowhere near. He might as well be in Afghanistan right now reporting. Right, (laughs) right, right. I was about to say Afghanistan. He might as well be for all all that matters. But you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we have the one and only John Kerry Aku. He's a former CIA officer, co-host of Political Misfits, my old show, author of books including The CIA Insider's Guide to the Iran Crisis, The Reluctant Spy. John Buddy to Malcolm Nance. Malcolm Nance is in Ukraine, and he was talk, telling Joy Ann Reed, he was standing there with apparently no bullets in his gun. No. Nope. Um, nowhere near no the clip, battlefield. No clip. Yep, no clip. They didn't give him a clip. No didn't, way. No way. I, yeah, yeah, didn't give him a clip. And yet he's like, I just had to, I had to do this. I had to go and fight for the freedom of Ukraine. Okay, fair enough. So this guy, there's an article that gets into, and I've known, like I said, I've known Malcolm Nance was full of it for a very long time after he said Jill Stein had basically, it was working with the Russians and all this other stuff. Paid which I started, agent. That's right. Paid agent. Mm-hmm. Nonsense. He had nothing to back that up with. Which, and he said she had her own show on RT. Right. Which, again, which has never, which, ever happened. Which is provably false. Yeah. Provably false. And so I started looking into him and he was full of it in general, yeah, meaning career and everything else. Oh, yeah. So let's go to you. You know Nance. I do. You've met him. Oh, yeah. And we had this conversation yesterday where we were in here dying laughing. <laughs> um, please give us your experience with Malcolm Nance. So it's freedom fighter. Malcolm it's Nance. the spring of 2000. <laughs> <laughs> there I was. <laughs> the beautiful spring day. I was, I, I, I was serving overseas and I had to return to CIA headquarters for a, a class. Yeah. It was an advanced class on counterterrorism operations. And as part of this class, they gave us a stack of books about terrorism, like a dozen books. Well, I'm busy. I'm not going to read these 12 books on terrorism. So I did what any government employee would do. <laughs> I put them on eBay. <laughs> right? You sold the books? I got you 50 sold bucks your for them. government books. Okay, okay. <laughs> I love those. <laughs> so I put them on eBay. Some guy buys them, $50. He sends me an email. He said, hey, I'm the high bidder on these terrorism books. I said, that's cool. He said, I'm, uh, I'm in Arlington, Virginia. I said, oh, I'm in Arlington, Virginia. Rather than me sending them to you, why don't we just connect and I'll just give them to you? 
He said, okay, yeah, my name's Malcolm Nance. I said, cool. We met at this bar in uh, in Roslyn. <laughs> what? It's a How small weird town. Is that? How random is that? So I, I meet with him after work that yeah. day. And uh, he had this group of people. There were three or four other people there. And he was holding forth, uh-huh. right? And I was undercover, so I didn't say anything about what I did. identify yourself. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. All I said is, hi, my name's John. I have these books. Uh-huh. That's it. And he said, oh, do you have an interest in terrorism? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm interested in it. And, uh, <laughs> and he says, least. well, I'm a, I'm a counterterrorism professional. Okay. Well, I was in the CIA's <laughs> counterterrorism center at the time and I never heard of this guy. So I said, okay, that's cool. So what do you do? And he said, oh, I've, I've been my whole adult life in counterterrorism, doing operations. And he, I knew he was full of crap yeah. from the get-go. I mean, you can spot a phony from a mile away. Yeah. I spotted him as a phony from a mile it's away. Like I could just, he just had the look. He did. He had the look and the arrogance. That's what struck me. Now, I've sold a lot of things on eBay over the years. <laughs> I don't remember who I sold what to 22 remember years him. ago. I remember yeah. Malcolm Nance. <laughs> right. So sure enough, I don't know, a year, two years later, whatever it was, I saw him on TV. And I was like, that's the guy that I sold those books to. And so I followed him all these years. Well, I've known all these years the guy is just simply a phony. Yeah. He's fake. He's built up this fake persona and he's made lots of money doing it. So um he's become more and more stridently anti-Russian, mm-hmm. not necessarily because he believes in, you know, the Ukrainian cause or, or whatever, because he knows that this is a good way to make money. That's yeah, right. Yeah. He's going to write a book. He's going to come back with grandiose claims of valor and heroicism. Exactly. Yeah. Nowhere near the battlefront. No, and that, this is the funny thing. There was no clip in that gun, right. first of all. Right. Secondly, for like one brief second, MSNBC, MSNBC identified his location as like hugging the Polish border, right? <laughs> He's 800 miles hugging, from the combat. Hugging, hugging the Polish border. <laughs> He's never going to even hear a gunshot. And then he's going to come back. And like you say, Jamal is yeah. going to write his book and he's going to make the rounds and he's going to get a fellowship at some think tank nobody's ever heard of. And he's going to resume his position as the thinker on the Democratic left on counterterrorism issues. Well, here's the rub with that. So right here, a retired chief, senior chief, E8, airborne mission supervisor, cryptologist, and yeah. spec war operative I've given. This is an article that was written on Nance. He says, retired chief Malcolm Nance, a wide berth. Basically, look, we've given him a wide berth on this. He said, bottom line, he left the Naval Security Group in disgrace. We, our professional communities and association, generally have a good laugh at his self-promotion, exaggeration, and performance in associations and his pretense of expertise. Basically, this guy doesn't know squat. No. And we've No, he doesn't know anything. His his experience in counterterrorism literally is what he read in those books I sold him. Oh, my God. But, John, how then— if we fast forward from the year 2000, right, 9-11 happens, and maybe that's where he got, you know, people forgot about him. And, he, yeah. you know, so he gets to reemerge. Yeah. He has, he's reborn as Malcolm Nance, mm-hmm. this intelligence expert. expert, right, off of your old used books. <laughs> uh, so he reemerges. How does he end up with a contract with MSNBC 
making loads of money yeah. because because when they pay let's do, let's be clear about this. I've worked in television for a long time. I've worked in media for closer to 20 years. Yeah. Right? So I know how this stuff works. You usually vet the people. Yes. Very well. You don't just offer people contracts willy-nilly to because you're paying them for for their actual expertise. But you it takes a while before you offer people contracts unless they're, you know, obviously verifiable who they are, right? Right. So Malcolm Nance, I mean, a little Google search right. does it does the job. How then does he wind up with a lucrative deal on MSNBC to be their go-to intelligence guy? You know, that that's a great question. And I think it's a combination of things. I think MSNBC dropped the ball, number one, in their vetting. Or, you don't think that was on purpose? Or they didn't care. Yes. Right there. Yeah. I think yes. I think it's the latter. They didn't care. And and like the article said, he's given a wide berth for reasons that have never been clear to me. I think it's because he's so arrogant and he's such an accomplished self-promoter that either he fools people or they allow themselves to just ignore the negatives. The in obvious. His, the obvious. Or he's in his just saying what they want him to again, say. Again, yeah. having been on having having worked on television for a long time. You can kind of see when somebody gets onto the set, right, and has this smug mm-hmm. King King James type <laughs> look. So and true. And he has, so you know, true. he has he gives the bedroom eyes to the camera, raises his nose a little bit, and he kind of has this smug look. So I had MSNBC on mute, and I remember the first time I saw a younger version of him, uh-huh. and he had this smugness. Oh, yes. And I didn't have to turn it on for me to it go, just came through the, that through the guy yeah. is full of it. And then when I turn it on, I'm like, dude, you don't even know what you're saying no. about yeah. Russia. No. You know, there was another guy uh, on Fox a couple of years ago, you probably remember, where I remember saying to Tucker Carlson one time, the, the stuff that this guy says doesn't make sense yeah. to me. Where he talks about having been involved in black ops, right? Which is not a term that's used in the in the community. <laughs> right. Wet work. Wet work. No. Wet no. work is that is that that's what they use in a movie? Right. No, they're talking about like blood and stuff like yeah, that. Wet work. Straight out of the movies. Yeah. Right. And this guy's like, I was a special operations commando, uh, special tactics. He didn't but say the, that. Yeah, I mean, and and these titles that this guy claimed to have had, they just simply don't exist. Yeah. In the CIA. And I ran into him in the green room one time at Fox. And I said, so so what uh, division were you in when you were at the CIA? I was in counterterrorism. I said, oh, I was in counterterrorism. Who'd you work for? Silence. <laughs> and I said I to Tucker, it. I think this guy's fake. Yes. Three, four, five months later, somebody says, I think this guy's fake. <laughs> and it turns out not only was he fake, but he was using that fake persona to get mortgages. Right? Are you serious? To invest in property. And now he's doing five years in a federal clink. See, I always joke that um, Nance looks like he owes somebody child support money. But that <laughs> takes it on a whole nother level, right? I, I, look, I always joke that way because to me, it kind of looks that way. But all things being equal, that's horrendous. Isn't so it basically, It happens every day in Washington. Wow. And they yeah. were willing to go like that far. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, Manila made, a, made an important point. There's a lot of money involved in stuff like oh, this. Yeah. When I was at ABC News, and I was at ABC, let me think, 14, 15 years ago, 
And they were paying me just to be on call. They were paying me a hundred grand back then. Oh, as so Nance is making a killing. As a retainer. So you and, know he's making a killing. And we would go months without them ever calling me. Yeah, that just gave them the right to call me and, you know, put me on the air. Well, I was, I was nobody and I was making a hundred. The other counterterrorism guy that they had was Dick Clark and Dick was making 300. So 15 years ago, what's Malcolm Na- West, making Wesley right Clark? now? Uh, Dick Clark. Uh, he was the counterterrorism czar at the White House. Oh. And so yeah. Nance oh. on MSNBC has to be making a killing. And he's been there for a very long time. Right. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, he's got to be making 500 at least. Yeah. It's just, That's astonishing. It, uh, that is astonishing. It's wow. like you, how do you blow so much smoke? Right. That people, who, why? Why? I, I can't, I can't think that they don't know How the folks at MSNBC. They have to know. They have to know. I have They're to not think, stupid. I have to think it's because he's a paid actor. Yeah. And they know it. Plus, yeah. he toes the DNC line. Yes, he does. Every time he opens his mouth, it's exactly what the DNC wants him to say. Yeah. And just so happens on MSNBC. I mean, man, John, thank you for this. Oh, my I, pleasure. I always debunking, love these stories. Debunking <laughs> yeah. the hero, the would-be hero, Malcolm Nance. The freedom fighter. With an actual real hero. Yes. If you guys don't know <laughs> Johnny you. K's story, a real hero, Malcolm Nance. Not so much. Bogus. Not so much. Far away from the battlefield with no bullets. <laughs> no bullets. Fighting for freedom. Malcolm <laughs> Nance. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, I'm Chan. The voice that you guys were listening to is John Cariaco. He's a... There we go. Former CIA officer, host or co-host of Political Misfits, books including the CIA Insider's Guide to the Iran Crisis and the Reluctant Spy. And you can find him on Twitter at John Kariaku and learn more about him at johnkariaku.com. Protect whistleblowers. That's, That's what right. I got to say. Protect right. whistleblowers. Protect whistleblowers. Thousand percent correct. Fault lines. Thomas. Chan. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. The depressed Manila Chan. Yeah. It's like, oh, man, if I just had man. less um, integrity, if I could lie God, that much more. Why can't I be a liar? Yeah. I would be making half a million dollars blowing smoke up people's butts on MSNBC. Just nakedly lie. Just. Uh, You'd make so much money like that. So Why much do money. I have to have a conscience? I mean, or, or on Fox News. You could be a, bl- a black conservative. Uh, be like, you could totally I, I am, be a black I, conservative. I am totally against the Democratic Party and black folks are on a plantation. I, yeah, I could do all that. Wait, wait. What would be your new persona if you were to remake yourself like Malcolm Nance has? Like, like, hmm. would I remake? What, what would be my remade Manila Like if persona? you're going on MSNBC right, if I'm and you're just giving Democratic propaganda. Right. Would that be it? Would I just like suddenly toe the DNC line. Yeah, pretty and, much. And you would go the... I'd you be the entire against, opposite. Against stereotype, right? Yes. So you'd have to go super far Trump right. supporter. Okay. Super far right. Um, Against immigration. Against, okay. let's say, Medicare, Social Security. Just be fully against that stuff. And Fox News will bring you in all the time. I mean, they'd be like, and hey, you, how do you feel about this? Lucrative retainer. That's right. A six-figure retainer. Man, if we could just get God. rid of our integrity. Now, how does he write books? And I mean... I guess the dude likes research. Yeah. Because you can't, I mean, you have to at least have some semblance of knowledge of the subjects you're writing about. But Malcolm Nance, like, to go into he that bought stuff. John's 
used government books. And then so in the past 20 years, he's, I mean, I guess it's paying dividends, man. Has to be. Has to be. Paying dividends. Because if John was saying he was getting paid that like 15 years ago. Oh my God. 100K back then. And like he said, he was a nobody at the time. Right. Versus like in that kind of money now, you're easily at a half a mil on a contract, a retainer contract. That's just astonishing. Mind-blowing. Yeah, that is mind-blowing. Look, let's do this. Let's go to our guests. We have Tyler Nixon, the one and only Army veteran, counselor at law, constitutionalist, advocate, writer, technologist, critical historian, and extremist in defense of liberty, just like a Malcolm Nance. Tyler, what's going on, my man? How you doing this morning? Hey, good morning. Good morning. I, I thought you were. I thought you were talking about Malcolm X. No, Malcolm <laughs> Nance. I was like, wait. No, no, freedom fighter. <laughs> Malcolm Nance. Right. The one, I kept hearing the one Malcolm. That... I'm like, John. Isn't John a little young to know now Malcolm X? <laughs> right. Right. Um, anyway, <laughs> what did you think about that story, by the way? No. Well, let me tell you something. If you're if you're tearing into Malcolm Nance and exposing him, let me just pull up a a, a recliner and join in. Because this man is just a just a true jackass and a true fraud. Yes, I mean I'm looking. He claims to have so supervised hundreds of waterboardings, and you know he was in the Navy, supposedly in the I guess like uh, you know in an era when we weren't doing waterboardings. I right. mean it's ridiculous. He, he's just a complete fraud, and you, you know I mean look, I think other than say a John Brennan and people like that. Generally speaking, anybody who's, uh, as John Kiriakou is, a professional in the intelligence community is not a raving, ranting, uh, partisan lunatic. And Nance is exactly that. He just, he is absolutely, I've heard him uh, so many, every time I've seen him or heard him on on, uh, MSNBC, I've been like, what is this? I mean, I I would never have thought he was uh, ex-military or had anything, certainly anything to do with intelligence or counterintelligence. Uh, He just comes across some mouth-breathing Typical, you know, MSDNC partisan. Yeah, and look, exactly I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to raise the issue, but I think let's face it. His skin color has to do with why he's been able to endure where he is. They, they are. They don't want to be perceived as oh, you know, we got rid of this guy because he's a, a complete. Uh, you know, and they also t- he toes the line. Obviously, yeah. well, he toes the line. I think he's just an actor. He, you know, there's been enough fraud exposed with this guy that that. Uh, I mean, you know, nobody's looked into his. Like you said, he's not been vetted. And it's it's just it, it's par for the course over there, to be honest, at MSNBC. I mean, because like you made the point, like when you when you were on networks, Manila has been in TV for God knows how long, forever. And so it's like her experience of saying, look, usually you vet people like that when they're coming into the show like this, especially for a when while. Yeah, right. It's it takes months. Yeah. It was like, I hear my military credentials. This is my experience, expertise. And yeah, you look like, OK, we're looking to that to make sure that right. person is who they say they are. What happened here? Like, it's so weird. It's just very bizarre. Welcome to the sh- welcome to the show, Manila. Right. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> it's, and, and you it's know nice what? To, it's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Tyler. Well, I'll, I'll tell you the reason I'm not this multi-million-dollar, you know, MSNBC host or CNN host or whatever is because I have this damn conscience, right? Like integrity. I hate that. Integrity is costing me millions. God. I know it's it's awful. Oh, it's so integrity. We have, to, we have to be we have to be poor, but we go to heaven. Yeah. Integrity is expensive, <laughs> man. Ultimately, hopefully, integrity is expensive. That's the way I always think of it. Um, Tyler, let's jump into the Elon Musk stuff because you sent me when I was doing the show the other day. You're like Elon, and basically he's trying to buy Twitter for all intents and purposes and trying to get the money up together in order to buy it with the idea of bringing it private. Now, again, I pointed out before, if we are depending upon billionaires to save free speech, we've already lost it. By the same token, I accept what he's trying to do with this because I hate what Twitter is right now. 
I mean, for God's sake, the Biden thing is something that Republicans should not leave and should not let go. Meaning during the election with Biden um, and Trump, where Twitter blocked off information about the Hunter Biden laptop stuff, because in their heads, this was similar to what was taking place with Clinton. And they didn't necessarily, they knew in their heads, Clinton lost because of the email stuff. That's her excuse anyway. And the last thing they wanted is this kind of October surprise to basically take down Biden. So they decided to use their power on Twitter, social media to block off various stories with mainstream media basically towing the line with them and doing so and prevented the New York Post from basically exposing something that was a big deal, especially considering the linkages to the big guy, to Biden himself in regards to some of those deals, not to mention even the meeting with the Burisma guy um, who, who um, supposedly took place based on the information from the laptop that at this point, the New York Times, Washington Post have basically said is legitimate. What is your take on that? Do you think he's going to be able to pull this together in order to get it um, in the first place? I guess that's the first question to start off. And what would it mean if he is able to buy it? Well, let me I just wanted to touch on just real quick, the whole Hunter Biden uh, laptop, since, you know, obviously <laughs> I have a connection there. But, I, you know, to me, worse, what compounds, what, uh, you know, exacerbates what was done in terms of the suppression of that story is is not just the suppression of the story. The fact that these people damn well knew that that was an authentic laptop. They damn well knew it was it was real and that it wasn't disinformation created by Russia. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. You would have to be a fool to think that because it was because of the just the nature of the material that was coming out and, and the intimacy. And so, I mean, so, you know, they, it's not just that they suppressed it. They lied about it and they, they embraced a lie and they did it, you know, more than willingly. And, uh, you know, after the fact, it's like, yeah, trying trying to sort of jump in now and, and salvage their reputations, whatever the have you, or, you know, be when it when it really goes uh, goes live, so to speak, and he gets indicted in Delaware, in federal court in Delaware, you know, that then they'll they'll have said, well, you know, we we did we did finally admit it. It was uh, real. But, you know, that doesn't matter because the damage was done. OK, as far as uh, as uh, Elon Musk, I don't know if you knew this. I clerked for the Delaware Chancery Court. Um, which is the corporate, you know, court of America, if not the world. I mean, it basically has uh, brokered or, or uh, you know, litigated probably some of the largest con- corporate control disputes uh, ever. And uh, there's, you know, there's there's case law there. Incorporated in Delaware. <laughs> yeah, everything. I mean, and, and righteously so. I mean, people are like, oh, it's the tax thing. It's actually not. It's really um, what it comes down to is the predictability of um, litigation and the course of what goes down when there's when there's problems when you know disputes arise they can they have a very predictable uh, common law there in, in these equity court and, it, and it's unique equity court so they definitely try to or they used to anyway I don't know how, how it is now but they used to cultivate judge cha- that are called chancellors vice chancellors and cha- the chancellor who really knew their stuff and were extremely professional not some typical judge you know like uh, you might get in a, on a superior court or a common pleas court yeah yeah someone you find at circuit that just rules on everything. This is like very specific. Yeah. To, to I, oh, it's awful. Like the, in, in New York, the Supreme court, you know, you might get a guy who's doing a, uh, you know, a, a divorce or a traffic case. And the next thing you know, he's ruling on the, the, uh, the fate of a company or a corporation, you know, and the, the managers and the directors of these corporations around the world, they don't want that. They want to know with predictability, what is, you know, what is going to happen if there's any sort of dispute or any kind of, uh, uh, you know, issue over control or fiduciary duties, and Delaware Chancery Court has always provided that for at least a century, and that's what that's why uh, it's not some sort of tax haven, as people have uh, you know or like to say. That being said, um, 
I think that uh, there's there's a uh, first of all the poison pill provision adopted by the board is already putting them on a defensive uh, posture in terms of trying to fend off Musk because this is clearly you know they call it a poison pill. It's clearly meant to thwart him. It's not meant to protect the company. Um, and the problem with it is under Unical v. Mesa, which is a, a 1986, I believe, case, um, which sort of governed these these provisions. Um, it, they have to show that that it was you know that he per, per, uh, uh, posed a threat to the to the integrity of the company, to the future of the company, to the health of the company. He's not a corporate raider. He is not a Carl Icahn. He's not a uh, you know he's not looking to go in and and scavenge the company, break it up. You know what I'm saying? He wants to go and imp- right. And, this isn't Bain Capital. Yeah, exactly. He wants to go and purchase it with his own money, a hundred percent, and to improve it. And he's outright said that. So this this really, you know, without their coming out the board, in other words, coming out and outright saying, you know, we 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 don't agree with this politics. We don't want free speech. We want this to continue, which they they're, they'll never do. It leaves this gap as to why they would why they would be so defensive of you know a, an offer that's a premium, a clearly a premium, way above what what the market is uh, is producing right now and what it has been. I mean, Twitter's been in the tank for the last uh, you know six months to a year. But go, go ahead. Yeah, t- Tyler, explain to us this: that the board has a fiduciary duty to do what's in the best interest of its shareholders, right? That's correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and given the track record of Twitter since they IPO'd, like I don't know what was it, like close to close to a decade ago, right? Since they IPO'd, um, it their their shares, their the price per share has, I don't think more than once or twice ever gone above the original IPO. So given given those trends, they've consist they've consistently remained under their opening uh, share price. Given that Musk is offering like 20% above that number, why, why, I mean, it, doesn't this prove that it just everything, everything shows that the board is not doing anything or everything in the interest of its shareholders? Absolutely. You know, that's exactly the arguments that will be made uh, if this, if this is challenged, if this poison pill provision is challenged by, by Musk in Delaware Chancery Court, which it should be. Frankly, uh, because it's I think it's a naked attempt to to fend off uh, not a corporate raider again, you know, not someone who's looking to break up the company or scavenge it, but someone who's stated, uh, you know, the goal is to make it better, to improve it, to take it to the next level, and he's willing to put forty three billion dollars of his own money on the line. I mean, you know, this isn't some deal cobbled together, uh, leveraged to the hilt. So, you know, they, like I said, and then and interestingly, if you heard, saw recently, Jack Dorsey. Uh, in some online, you know, random online comments had nothing but, but frankly, disdain for the board and said, you know, it's the biggest problem with the company right now. So that, that can't exactly help their position either. Yeah, well, that I was mean, very interesting. Does I mean, the, does the Dorsey, little guy have any say? The, the, the average shareholder, do they have any say? I mean, I know the board's supposed to represent them, but that's kind of like saying Capitol Hill's supposed to represent our interests. That's a very good point. I mean, it seems like their interest is more so we just need to stop us. We just, exactly, exactly. You know, we don't have a we have a Republican form of government, uh, you know, around this country where it's you know, but indirect represent it's representation is what we have. We don't directly vote on, and it's just the same way with shareholders. You know, they don't they don't get to vote directly. I mean, they unless the board decides to put it before the shareholders. So you know, what you have to have are proxy fights and you know, to gain control of the board, and the board d- governs. I think it was laughable when the management came out and said, 
you know, we don't care what the board has to say. Even when when Musk was going to be on the board, they were there was this, you know, well, you know, the board doesn't dictate policy in this company. Or oh, they, they have no idea. That. They have no idea what a board of directors does. That's exactly what a board of directors does: is dictate <laughs> policy to the management. Who are? I mean, it's like, well, then what do they do? Are they just a rubber stamp for your for your you know, for the management? I think I think, and and you raise also an interesting issue, which I've been sort of questioning for several years now, which is why has no one brought a uh, a derivative action, or it's that's the you know shareholder class action is called a derivative action. Uh, representing all the shareholders, and I and I'm tempted to do it myself against the Twitter board for breaches of fiduciary or the management as well for breaches of fiduciary duties, in which where they have pursued at the shareholder expense their own ideological agenda, and it may not be that they're straddling a transaction, you know, a, a business transaction, but it's still serving their own agenda and their own interests over the shareholders, and they sh- they if they can be found to have breached those duties. They can be held personally liable. Because correct me if I'm wrong, the board is supposed to take the interest of basically maximize profit, whatever is the highest interest from the standpoint of the ability for the investors to make money with the company itself. And to Manila's point, if he's trying to give you more than what the price is worth, then it seems that their argument is going to have to come up with a reason and rationale for why him taking the company is not a better outcome from the standpoint of the cost, as opposed to him, as opposed to the company staying the way it is now. Because I think, for, for, to your point, and even to Benilla's point, it is possible that the way Musk wants to take the company will be more profitable. Maybe. They don't know that, and they haven't necessarily come up with a rationale as to why it wouldn't be more profitable. But at the very least, what we know in advance, he's trying to give them more than what they are worth, if, if I'm understanding this correctly. So legally, it seems to be a problem with this. Or is it? I mean, am I misunderstanding this idea that these guys are supposed to maximize the profit of the company? Well, first of all, they don't have any profit at this point. As I understand it, they have yet to turn any sort of profits with this company. So I don't know how they keep, you know, people. I mean, it's you, it's reflected in the share price, I guess. You know, that's, and I think the only reason that they have uh, major investors and and uh, shareholders is because they are the premier platform. And you know, regardless of their practices, they still are the number one platform. You know, the first of their kind. And look, I mean, and they're all obviously premier company out of uh, you know Silicon Valley. But look, I mean. When you have you have appraisal rights as you know as shareholders when there is going to be a, a, when there's another a bidding war so to speak which could potentially happen because they're talking about bringing in another alliance of investors who would uh, you know beat uh, uh, Musk's fifty six dollar and forty no fifty four dollar twenty cents five four twenty yeah I love That's that right. little insertion there. Um, but you know the thing is, it's not hard and fast. It's not. There's no particular metric such as you know the profits, such as the share price. I mean, the share price is obviously a you know a major factor considered. But there are other considerations as well that can be brought in. They're sort of stakeholder oriented, like the you know the the um, the management of the company. What are the intentions, obviously, of the uh, of the um, ten, of the person making the tender offer? Um, you know, what is their track record? I mean, there's, there, there's a number of factors that come into play. So for example, a higher share price offer may not be, may be rejected, uh, and, and not viewed as the better offer because it's shaky because it's not, uh, for example, if they try to put together a coalition, I mean, I don't see any billionaire stepping up saying I'm willing to put up $43 billion of my own money and buy this company. And until they have that, I mean, the fact that it it may not be a 65 or $70, uh, uh, you know, a share, um, Offer tender offer by say a competing um, competing alliance of investors. The fact is to cobble a deal together that matches what Musk has offered, even just at his price, 
would require immense uh, coordination and an immense amount of skin in the game, which are these people going to really risk that to 65 to 70 hours a share when he could pull out the next day and literally tank them and they, they lose billions. And I, I just don't think, you know, so I think on, on objectively on, you know, as far as the, what the offer is and in terms of all the um, discrete factors that come into play, I don't see how anybody could beat Musk at this point. I mean, he's like I said, he has it all on the table. He's willing to take it a hundred percent. Not, not I'm going to buy controlling interest. Musk is obviously a market maker. He is a kingmaker. He utters something on Twitter and 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 the markets rattle and shake at his will. I mean, just take, for instance, Netflix this week. He dissed them on Twitter and they tanked 30 percent. I mean, they were like that's like they they were the worst performing stock already of 2022 because, I mean, God, 30 percent on Netflix. That's that was a big deal. Right. But. Tyler, let me let me throw this at you because he's there are a lot of people going, oh, and, and Jamarl included that, um, you know, you're as far as freedom of speech goes, you've already failed if you're relying on a billionaire to give it to you. Yeah. Number one. So we'll I agree with that, yeah. uh, with that point. But when you look at, for example, billionaire Jeff Bezos owning The Washington Post. Everyone was applauding that and saying how wonderful he is and giving voice to the people, you know, voice to the people like Taylor Lorenz, keeping her employed. Um, but, but then you have Elon Musk trying to buy Twitter where actual regular people do post things and use and have a voice. And the, the left of the media, which is the bulk of the media, goes wild, goes nuts. But more broadly, isn't this a sad state of events that it's something like 50, 50 or so corporations or very wealthy individuals own all of the media in the United States? I mean, back in the day, I mean, even, even as little as 25 years ago, there was something like I don't know, 200 some odd individual owners of different TV stations, local newspapers. All those local newspapers have been bought up by larger companies. Um, and the voices are gone. So is this the way to go? Is, is large corporations or billionaires? I mean, is that, are those our, our only options? Well, you know, you, you put your finger on it. I mean, it's a very unfortunate state of affairs. It used to be that independent stations all over the country that produce their own news used to have. And, and unfortunately, the, the tendency always with, uh, you know, corporate affairs, and, and particularly when an industry has a certain uh, consistency throughout towards monopolism, you know, always trying to come mergers, 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 you know, the efficiencies of that till it gets out of control. And, you know, you have the finance people driving the, the agenda. And the problem is, I think, ultimately, is not so much who owns it. It's whether they're putting their finger or their thumb on the scale and whether they're influencing the the content that comes out. And I don't think that it was necessarily the case. I mean, I think you had large corporations, you know, that owned media, uh, you know, major media years ago, but they just weren't insinuating themselves with a particular ideological uh, or political agenda as they are now, which is just brazenly turned into, they've converted it into complete propaganda. So, you know, that, I think that's, that's the major problem is, and, and worse, uh, you know, it's not just enough that they favor their own side. They've got to go and trash and completely marginalize the, the, anybody who's opposed to that. And they're in bed with the state, frankly, well, is this what is it is it wokeism, Tyler, or is it just just the the tribalism 
that corporations are. Well, I think it's a, it's a it's a toxic mixture of all of the above. I mean, if they didn't have double standards, they have no standards at all. I mean, let's face it. it you know, it used to be there was this bias. I mean, I, I was talking to somebody else about this the other day. You know, if those of us could remember back to say the 1980s, where you know, like Brokaw and uh, Rather, and you know, they, they would they would sort of slant stories. You know, you could tell there was like a little bit of a hostility towards. Uh, Republicans and like Reagan versus like, you know, they'd sort of kind of, you know, hero, make heroes of a Mike Dukakis or something like that. Um, Now, I mean, you know, but it wasn't, it was never overt. It was never obvious. They they ultimately gave you the facts largely. Um, And, you know, let's keep in mind, of course, the entire, I think, corporate media, even back then was representing the, you know, was very much influenced and infiltrated by the intelligence services of our country. And that, I think that's just a fact. But that being said, I think nowadays, it's just gone, it's gone, it's spun out of control. And I think it has so much to do with um, the influence. Uh, it, when you concentrate power like that, you know, you, uh, you, and, and influence and control, you risk that, you know, one side or one in one faction is going to grab it and run with it. And unfortunately, that's what we've seen in droves. And, uh, you know, and they're paying the price for it because people do not want propaganda opposing his news. I mean, it's like one thing if you just are admittedly like, look, we're, we're biased, but to pretend that you're objective, to pretend that you're the truth, uh, the oracles of, of, you know, righteousness. And, and, and when you're quite the opposite, you're known and exposed to be liars and frauds in so many instances, it's no wonder it's tanking. And, and, and honestly that these, the, the CNN uh, plus is just absolutely a complete debacle, $300 million. They can't get 10,000 people to watch failing miserably and because we were making a point door show gets more than that like jimmy like Dore? oh yeah. jimmy Dore, yeah. just one sure. show and fall he would have like five thousand people live yeah and these guys get like ten thousand <laughs> and they threw buku bucks at that yeah. thing which is like yeah millions again, it goes millions. back to why do i have these like moral standards i could have been taking some of those buku bucks from cnn well keep in mind chris wallace was taking some of those buku bucks but chris wallace has been losing his temper did recently his, because of did how he get buku bucks from them I thought he did in order to leave Fox. But, I mean, at this point, it's cratering. I mean, you know, and now he doesn't have the platform, cratering. which good riddance. I think the way he he insert, put his finger on a thumb on the scale during the debates was disgraceful. I mean, yeah. you know, these were live legitimate issues. And he just, you know, he was one of the worst. I would have never thought he would have been one of the worst debate infiltrator, you know, insinuators, whatever you want to call it. He's not his daddy. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Mike Wallace was a was a hard ass, uh, you know, guy who uh, I think ultimately, you know, was a, was a, had integrity and journalistic integrity. He took his job seriously. I want to get into the legalities of Section Two Thirty and why this hasn't necessarily been challenged in court. And what a, what I mean by that is, oftentimes people make this argument that oh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of these things are private industries. Well, you have a lot of companies that are private or businesses. You can walk outside the sandwich shop across the street is private. By the same token, if I'm going in that sandwich shop, they can't say you're black, so we're not going to serve you, or you're, you're Asian, so we're not going to serve you, or you're gay, so we're not going to serve you. Meaning, there are certain laws, regulation, and rules, even for the handicapped, if you're going into the business. Those businesses have to take certain actions in order to open up the doors of that business and allow themselves to make money in the first place. I, I just want to make this point, because I know we're coming up on the uh, end of the show, and it's, it's a point I've tried to make for years now. You know, an analogy would be not so much you can't serve them. It would be like you're immune from being sued if you do that to them. So, you know, and let's face it. People say, oh, it's a private company. They do whatever they want. Excuse me. They have what is the equivalent of sovereign immunity under Section 230, which means they are an extension of the sovereign. OK, you cannot have sovereign immunity and not be considered an, an appendage in some manner of a pub of the public sovereign. 
So don't give me this. They're not a public. They are being subsidized to the tunes of billions of dollars by the avoidance of litigation that uh, people who have absolutely righteous lawsuits have had their businesses destroyed by the arbitrary ideological decision-making uh, and these, frankly, deceptive trade practices of the Twitter management, and yet they cannot sue anybody. But I'll tell you what, they cannot stop a derivative action under 230 because it's the owners of the company suing, the shareholders suing the company, and they will have the same type of course of litigation, access to books and records, all their emails, all the internal decision-making and criteria as to why and how they banned how are you running a subscriber service where your business model is to purge people off the off? I mean, it's ridiculous. It just it makes no sense, just even on a common sense level, much less a business level. So I, you know, I really think this notion that it's a private company is a crock. It's a publicly traded company, and it's also subsidized by the U.S. government. I cannot wait to see their emails if and when there's a whistleblower, a leaker, because they're coming. Or derivative action in the way that you said it. I mean, the derivative action is basically the lawsuit saying they're not taking the best action in, in the interest of Yes, and we need to see basically. all your emails and all the decisions that went on and what the criterion is, whether it's rational, because they're entitled business judgment deference. But if it can be shown that they were pursuing their own interests, they, they face heightened scrutiny. And let's roll, baby. You know, we could really, I mean, and Google, guess what is a Delaware company? Or Alphabet is, and so is Facebook. These people are really cruising for a bruising. Surprised nobody's brought that action yet. Oh, very interesting. I'm kind of surprised at myself, considering all of the pushback they've been getting. But look, Tyler, thank you, my man. I appreciate it. Great conversation today. Really good nice conversation. Nice to speak with you. Um, the voice that you guys are listening to is Tyler Nixon, Army Entry Veteran, uh, Counselor at Law, Constitutionalist, Advocate, Writer, Technologist, Critical Historian, Extremist in Defense of Liberty. I always like that last one. Um, look, we're coming to the end of the show. I want to thank all of you, my co-host, Vanilla Chan, great job today. We also have our producer, our engineers. I want to thank all of them. And of course, I want to thank all of you, the audience. Um, thank you, guys. You listeners and the rumblers. And the rumblers. Staying with us That's all right. three hours. Share that video. Um, hit that rumble button. And even when we disagree in debates and everything else, you guys are still awesome. Definitely. See you guys tomorrow. You guys have a phenomenally good day. Bye-bye. Fault lines.